Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. It was so hot. It was it was like a ninety-five, a hundred degrees in the shade. The wind never blew. And they say. That New Orleans has humidity down there, which kind of cools us off. That's bullshit. It was un, it was death heat. Inside the convention center was so stifling hot, people tried to stay outside. Hot as hell, 100-something degrees. It's hot. It was very, very hot at that time. It was 97, 98 degrees. It was hot. And the heat radiating off of the highway yeah. at night was intensely hot. It's hot as hell. That was the worst summer. I mean... That, that was, there was some, I mean, that, that heat was ridiculous. Man, it was hot as heck in here. It was beyond Africa heat. If Africa heat was anything like that, like I said before, and I'll say it again, they keep saying go back to Africa, hell no. The Northwest is sweltering under this week's historic heat wave. Roads are buckling, cables are melting. In Seattle, many people don't have air conditioning, and Mayor Jenny Durkin is urging people to treat it as a serious health risk. Please, everybody, take care of each other, be smart, drink lots of water, don't overexert yourself, stay in the shade. We're joined by reporter Paige Browning of member station KUOW in Seattle. Good to have you here. Hi, Ari. Put this into context for us. Context. How bad is it? Ari, it's just so hot. It's been more than 30 degrees warmer than normal in Seattle. We've been seeing highs of 110 degrees, a little worse in Portland, closer to 50 degrees above normal, highs near 115 there, and even worse in some inland areas, hitting 118. Part of the problem, Ari, is the overnight temperatures. It's just not cooling down overnight. It's still in the mid-70s. We are seeing some relief in the Puget Sound area today. The high is only 91 degrees, if you call that relief. But it's actually getting worse inland. Spokane, Mm. the second biggest city in Washington, is at or above 110 degrees for the next couple days. And cities like Phoenix or Palm Springs might be accustomed to temperatures like this. But in Portland and Seattle, people don't have air conditioning. How are they coping? Yeah, that's the thing. Among major cities, Seattle and Portland have some of the lowest percentages of homes with AC. Estimates put Seattle between 30 to 40 percent of homes with air conditioning. It's just not normally this hot, so people haven't purchased it. And people are in general energy conscious and not wanting to worsen their impact on climate change. But some people now are giving in. I spoke with one of them, Vanessa Kirk Briley, who went searching for an air conditioner at a hardware store. And Bob, the best employee ever, walked by and I said, is there any chance that you have any? And he said, you know what, there might be one in the back. And that's how we got the last air conditioner in Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) But not everyone's been so lucky. People are getting really creative here. We've seen a lot of people at lakes and rivers. 
one hack like putting on wet socks before bed. And a lot of locals are renting hotel rooms. We also know that the population of people who are homeless has grown in Portland and Seattle like so many cities in recent years. Right. How is the city helping people who are not housed? Right. We have an estimated 12,000 people living outside in broader Seattle and King County. So what the city's done is open dozens of cooling centers right now. These are in community centers, Salvation Armies, gyms, churches, libraries are opened up. And the Seattle Parks Department has put on the sprinklers at large parks. They've opened a ton of wading pools and they're turning on the public drinking fountains, just places where people can go for free to cool down. And beyond the human toll, as we mentioned, this is hurting infrastructure. Tell us what's happening. Yeah, we've seen a lot of issues on roads. At least four spots on Interstate 5 that runs through the Seattle area have just buckled under the heat. It's too hot. The concrete's expanding and just breaking into pieces. And there have been some problems on transit as well. The light rail had to be slowed down in Seattle and Portland because the tracks and lines just got too hot. And I should mention the utilities, too. They're being hit hard. And so now there are going to be some blackouts in Spokane, people being given a time that they won't have power. It's Paige Browning of member station KUOW in Seattle. Thanks for your reporting. Thank you. In the Pacific Northwest, the heat has finally relented. For days, people without air conditioning endured record-breaking temperatures above 110 degrees. Now medical professionals are starting to assess the damage. Dr. Jennifer Vines is the lead health officer for the Portland metro area. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hi, thanks for having me. Give us a picture of the medical situation over the last few days. What did you see? So we saw day-over-day increases in calls for help, both to our 911 dispatch Uh, transports by ambulances and people showing up to emergency departments and urgent cares. Um, I would say the crisis really spiked on Monday. That was our third triple digit day. It was the hottest day uh, when we had hundreds of people in our cooling shelters and just record breaking days for calls to 911 and for animal welfare and people needing medical attention in our emergency departments. Hmm. I know you were working in the cooling centers. Um, Paint a picture of what the situation was like there. I mean, who was arriving? How were they doing? What was the scene? So our flagship cooling center was at the Oregon Convention Center, which is a beautiful, iconic meeting space uh, in inner Portland. We took over a large room that, again, expanded day over day with a seating area that looked a bit like an airport lounge with people coming in with crossword puzzles, laptops, uh, people watching television, and then extended into just a field of cots where people had come in with their belongings uh, to sleep, to spend the night, and to cool off in there. So there were uh, dogs on leashes, there were cats and carriers, there were families with babies, um, there were people who looked like uh, they had just come from a business meeting and had just come in to work on their laptop for for a little while. So a very colorful scene, um, but also really sad to see people coming in with wheelchairs, their main belongings, and several people telling us that they had come from really hot apartments. So several people with homes that were just simply too hot to be in. 
In British Columbia, just north of the border, Canadian officials say hundreds of people died over the weekend during the heat wave. Can you explain why Oregon and Washington have not reported a similar death toll, or is it possible that we might learn of fatalities in the days ahead? So we have some initial information that's really sobering around uh, deaths related to the extreme heat. Our calls to our county medical examiners uh, reporting deaths showed a clear spike over those three hottest days. Many of those appear to have been heat-related. These were people who were found alone with no fan, no air conditioning, many of them older with underlying conditions. Mm. So we're looking not just at excess deaths, but we'll be looking for details as the medical examiners determine cause of death to really understand what role heat played. But I think there's no question uh, that there was a spike that accompanied the higher temperatures. What did you and your team learn from this emergency? If these kinds of heat waves are going to become more common as the climate changes, uh, do you feel prepared to handle extreme weather in the future? Are there lessons that you learned that you'd take forward? Yeah, thanks for the question. I was one of 800 county employees. That's about a quarter of our entire workforce responding. We knew heading into the forecast that this was going to be a life-threatening heat. And unfortunately, that has turned out to be true. I think, um, especially in Portland, Oregon, this comes just four months after a severe winter storm where we had historic uh, ice storms, several months after wildfires last fall that gave us some of the worst air quality on the planet. So I think there is a sense that this is a taste of the new normal. I'm a believer in public service. People show up and do the right thing to help their neighbors and to help their communities. But I do think that as we come out of this particular event, we're going to be looking at how we set up sustainably to be able to respond to events like this, you know, without completely burning through all of our staff that have already been working so hard for the last year and a half. That is Dr. Jennifer Vines, lead health officer for the Portland metro area. Thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about the heat and let's talk about the shade. Here in New York City, Mayor de Blasio is warning to keep cool as a matter of safety, not just comfort, as a heat advisory is in effect today and tomorrow. But the heat in New York doesn't hold a candle to what's happening on the other side of the country, where the Pacific Northwest is in the midst of a heat wave never before seen. Portland, Oregon hit 112 degrees on Sunday, overtaking the previous all-time record high there by a full five degrees. Seattle experienced its first back-to-back 100-degree and plus days in history and went for the hat trick yesterday. Hat trick means three in a row in hockey. Ah, hockey played in a cool arena on a surface of ice. Ah, but oftentimes left out of the conversation is what happens to the most vulnerable during these times of extreme weather. Our next guest's new article, however, addresses it head-on on the topic of shade. So joining us now is Alejandro Barunda, former climate scientist and a National Geographic writer now on climate change, adaptation, and the environment. Her new feature is called A Shady Divide and is the July cover story for Nat Geo. Welcome to WNYC, Alejandra. Glad you could join us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And your piece focuses on an area in southern Los Angeles that is less than 40 blocks from where your father grew up in the first home that your grandparents bought, but it is also an area built on the appeal of the sunshine. So can you start us off by talking about that personal context? Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for, for asking. Um, so my my grandparents moved to Los Angeles in the, in the 50s, 
And they lived in a bunch of places all around South and East Los Angeles before landing uh, about a mile away from one of the places we profiled in the story. Um, and they'd moved away, maybe moved south by the time I came along, but we'd go back up to that part of town and visit friends and family. And I just remember being a small child, just, you know, hot all the time, baking in the sunshine that at the time I, I loved, uh, but now kind of recognize as this this sign of, of this big disparity in the city and in cities across the country um, in terms of who has access to cool and shade. So did the overall urban design of the city of L.A. play a part in the problem you discuss in the piece? I, I, I see you write nearly 20% of the trees are in five census blocks where 1% of the population resides. Yeah, that's, that was a really fascinating thing to to see both kind of in the maps and in the data. Um, the, there are a lot of things that, that kind of feed into this big disparity in tree cover and other kinds of shade cover uh, in Los Angeles and beyond. But one of the really important ones is uh, is historical. It's about the the urban planning decisions made both by the city and by the federal government um, starting kind of back in the 1930s and even beyond. And in the 1930s, there, uh, the federal government instituted this policy that we now kind of colloquially call redlining, where they literally drew red lines around some neighborhoods and green lines around others uh, to mark whether these areas were suitable for, for uh, to be supported in federally backed housing loans. And since housing is one of the main ways that, that we've used in this country to, to generate wealth. This started off this huge, uh, a huge pattern of wealth inequality and, and disinvestment in some neighborhoods and investment in others. And one of the clearest ways you can see that is with the tree cover, the canopy cover in different parts of the city. Um, and so in, in parts of Los Angeles and Beverly Hills and uh, the fancier neighborhoods, there's trees everywhere. It's shady. It's cool. It's beautiful to be in. It's it's a totally different experience than if you drive just a couple miles south into neighborhoods that were formerly redlined and have, you know, single digits canopy cover. In Huntington Park, where we were, uh, the canopy cover was about 3%. So that's essentially nothing. And I love how you write, a city's tree canopy can be considered infrastructure. And in that context, President Biden has been completely reimagining what the term means in this country, right? Uh, involving the care infrastructure, things like that, not just roads and bridges. And the problem of shade is not exclusive to Los Angeles. Do you think shaded areas should be included in talks of infrastructure funding? I would love to see. I would love to see that happen. I have not yet seen it explicitly uh, discussed, but but I think what's interesting about shade in particular is that you can get it in a lot of different ways, right? Like it's it's partly about trees, it's partly about architecture and design, and, and at the heart of it is this question about what we want our public spaces to be and who we want them to be to be for. And so one of the things in in LA, but this is relevant in a lot of other cities across the country, is that as the emphasis on car culture evolved, a lot of the trees that, the, at least the public street trees that 
did exist in the city got got taken out as streets were widened, those parking parking spots were expanded. Um, and so even if we did actually have that infrastructure in place, it was devalued in um, in order to give cars and, and the things that go along with cars more space. And I think there's a really great opportunity in a moment here to to rethink how we want those public spaces to be. And Shade's a, a really w- good way, I think, to think about that. Like if you make pedestrian areas comfortable, if you make it nice for people to be outside in, in public spaces, then, then you can really change their experience um, as well as kind of the shape of the city. Your story is mostly focused on L.A., but can you compare New York and L.A. or other major cities in L.A.? In this respect, is it particular to a place like Los Angeles, which is in a a dry climate, so there wouldn't be as much naturally growing, um, you know, shade tree cover? Is this an L.A. story or is this a national urban story? Oh, this is definitely a national urban story. Um, We we focused on L.A. because it actually is really emblematic of this problem that we see nationwide and also has a pretty active plan to at least try to to fix the problem um but you can see these disparities in cities across the country so portland oregon actually has one of the biggest temperature differences kind of driven in part by by tree cover between neighborhoods that were formerly graded a under the redlining schema and those that were redlined um so they're you know right in the middle of this heat wave are, are feeling this extra impact um, of, or those who live in formerly redlined areas are feeling extra heat impacts right now that is partly related to whether or not there are trees in a neighborhood. And Portland, obviously, is anything but a tri-climate. So it's interesting that that you bring Portland into this. What is this plan to address it that you refer to regarding L.A.? Uh, uh, so L.A., uh, has a version of kind of New York's Million Trees Initiative, um, but they're focusing really explicitly on on getting trees into the ground in places that have not historically gotten the tree investment that other other parts of the city have. So they're planting tens of thousands of trees, partnering with a bunch of nonprofits um, and private citizens and everything to to get just tons and tons and tons of trees into the ground in parts of South Los Angeles and East Los Angeles and places that haven't had the trees that, you know, places like Beverly Hills have had in the past. Um, it's a really, I, I, I loved every moment that I spent <laughs> with the folks working, working on this project. They're so passionate and so energetic and you drive or walk around different parts of LA now and you can just see this whole, mini forest of baby trees, essentially, that are going to take 10, 20, 30 years to to get to the point where they provide the beautiful shade that you can find in other neighborhoods. But it's this really exciting start. um, And people care so much about about fixing this problem. That is so good to hear somebody sound optimistic about uh, something where justice is concerned. How do you see this fitting into larger questions of climate justice and environmental justice in this country? Yeah, that's a great question. I I mean, I think what's one of the really important 
things to that I took away from this and that I think I, I hope our, our readers take away is is that I mean climate change is real and its effects are having very different impacts on people even just a few miles away from each other in the same city. So in New York, for example, the excess heat that people are feeling in Brownsville or in the South Bronx or in parts of the Rockaways during a heat wave um, can be several degrees more than those who live in neighborhoods with more trees and cooler temperatures. Um, and that has really serious health impacts. Uh, it has health impacts uh, yeah, it has really serious health impacts. And I think in New York, the statistic is like, is that older black New Yorkers are twice as likely to, to die during a heat event than older white New Yorkers. And that's an enormous disparity and that, that stands in many cities across the country. So, so these things matter. Um, they matter. They, they have real life impacts on the ground and, at this point, not taking justice and into account and looking at the historical reasons that our cities look and feel the way they do is is wildly irresponsible. And so I'm really glad to see justice and climate justice and environmental justice getting some more attention, both from uh, the federal government and at the state and city level. In our last just 30, 45 seconds, do you have a take? as a climate scientist on these all-time record highs, way over 100 degrees in Portland and over 100 in Seattle, or the building collapse in Miami, which some people say might have been a secondary effect of climate change with rising sea levels and uh, softening soil? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what we're seeing in the Northwest in particular is uh, really a taste of, of what's to come and, and shows how, how risky, how risky climate change is going to be and how much it's pushing kind of what we're used to being able to deal with and what our infrastructure is built to deal with beyond the capacity that it might have. Um, and it's, I, I just feel so deeply for everyone out there who's, who's experiencing something that they never really expected to have to deal with. Um, and I think at this point, we just have to be really clear eyed about the fact that this is happening and the fact that we have to build our systems and build our resilience in a way that's going to protect us all into the future. Alejandro Barunda's article in National Geographic is the July cover story, and it's called A Shady Divide. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. What's this thing with Trump and you? I don't. He's, it's like me and Letterman. What has he got against you here? I don't get it. You know, the, 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 this all dates back to uh, when we were growing up together in Kenya. Yeah. And, uh... Like many other African countries, Kenya has so far escaped the worst health, worst health effects of the COVID pandemic. But the social and economic effects have cut deep, and they are leaving many families in despair, as NPR's Ada Peralta reports. Paulina Fande dodges electricity cables as she guides us through the narrow alleys of Kibera, one of the big slums here in Nairobi. Afande is a community health worker, but throughout this pandemic, she hasn't really treated people with COVID. Instead, people are telling her how they've lost jobs, their homes, how their kids have left school. Some parents are still like a challenge in terms of the school fees. And even some of the kids are forced to sell this illegal bank. 
illegal bang or marijuana. We jump over an open sewer and enter Jacqueline and Gaira's house. <laughs> it's one room, a couch, a bed behind a curtain. For more than a year now, Jacqueline has not had steady work. Life is very hard. It's very hard from that corona. Jacqueline used to wash clothes and clean houses, but now no one wants a stranger in their house. It means she can't afford to send her four kids to school. Her oldest boy almost graduated high school, but now he's on the streets doing whatever odd job he can get, hustling to help with money. He's just hustling for now. When the country gets better, then we look for what he will do. Her daughter, who is 14, got pregnant when schools were shuttered. She gave birth three weeks ago. Both Jacqueline and her daughter say this is not the way they imagine their life. What's worse, Kenya has vaccinated about 1% of its population, so COVID isn't going anywhere. It will not get well soon, but we'll just keep going on. Earlier this month, the Mo Ibrahim Foundation, which studies African governance, put out a report looking at how COVID has affected the continent. It found that many African countries went into recession for the first time in 30 years. It found that more than a million girls might never return to school after getting pregnant when schools closed. In Kenya, virtual learning was impossible for most, so kids simply missed a whole year of school. Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland, is on the board of the Mo Ibrahim Foundation. She says before the pandemic, African countries had made huge strides in getting and keeping girls in school. Now we're back to that um, vulnerability again. It's setting back the sustainable development goals. Not only that, she says, but this disruption in education comes amid high levels of youth unemployment. The report found that last year, Africa was the only continent that saw a rise in all kinds of violence, including war, crime and riots. And it's because a lack of, um, you know, futures for young people. And that has to be tackled as an absolute priority. Back in Kibera, we stop in another one-room house. This is 18-year-old Teresa Chunga's parents' house. Her dad, Peter, sits on the couch. She sits on the bed with her brand-new baby. She's good at science, so she wants to be a doctor. But this pandemic threw her whole life into disarray. Her hope was that uh, if uh, the government will not have closed, she will still be in school. And uh, both her parents will still be working to earn some living. Her dad hangs his head. It's been more than a year since he's worked. No money, no nothing. We are just uh, rotating around like uh, we don't know exactly what to do. Kenyans are defined by hard work and optimism. They toil from sunrise to sunset. Even in the worst of times, you hear hope from them. But this family is barely hanging on. Do you, do you have hope? that you'll be able to go back to school? No. Not a maybe, not a God willing, just a resigned no. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Nairobi. White supremacy is the sickness. The Delta variant of the coronavirus is changing how the world fights COVID. By now you know the variant was first identified in India. It moves fast. It is in 60 countries, including the United States. Dr. Maria Van Kerkhove is with us now. She's an infectious disease expert and the COVID-19 technical lead at the World Health Organization. Good morning, Dr. Van Kerkhove. Good morning, Noel. Thanks for having me. 
We're very pleased to have you. So last week, the WHO said fully vaccinated people should keep wearing masks to prevent Delta, the Delta variant, from being spread. Why'd you make that change? Well, actually, Noel, that isn't a new recommendation. Uh, it's something that we've been reinforcing since since vaccination has been rolling out and since we've seen the emergence of variants of concern. If you remember, we had the Alpha variant that was first detected and reported towards Christmas time, New Year's, uh, starting from the UK, and that has spread around the world uh, quite rapidly. And until we know more about these variants in terms of their uh, ability of our public health and social measures, our countermeasures like diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines, how well they work against these variants, we are advising that people still continue to adhere to the individual level measures that we know work. This includes mask wearing. So there's been a lot of reporting of our of our press conference last Friday, but indeed that isn't a new recommendation. Um, we just want everybody to do everything they can to drive transmission down. The Delta variant is an incredibly transmissible virus um, variants. You know, these viruses are becoming more fit. The virus is evolving and this is natural. You mentioned that it's in 60, 60 countries and in fact, it's actually in 98, wow. uh, 96 countries right now, excuse me. And so it's spreading. It's more transmissible than the alpha variant. So we need to just do all we can to prevent as many infections as we can and really do what we can to reduce the spread. I think the spread of the Delta variant and the repetition that we need to keep wearing masks, at least that's the WHO's advice, makes people worry that we are not going to get out of this, that there's no end to this pandemic. Um, do you see an end in sight? And, and where do you see it? I do see an end in sight, and we will get out of this pandemic. We really do need to see that. Um, you know, you've heard this this phrase of the light at the end of the tunnel, but that tunnel is sort of dark and dangerous so far, and not everybody has that bright shining light yet. Vaccines and vaccination are an incredibly powerful additional tool that we have, but not everybody around the world has access to the vaccine. Um, I heard you talking earlier about the COVAX facility and trying to improve that. And we've had good donations um, being announced by countries like the United States. We need those doses now so mm -hmm. that we can protect those who are most at risk now in every country right now, not next year, right now. But we do need to continue to do what we can to drive transmission down. Vaccines are part of the solution. It's vaccines and not vaccines only. And so masks are part of that. It doesn't mean that masks need to be worn everywhere all of the time. It's really in areas where the virus is transmitting, the Delta variant in particular, um, if you're in enclosed spaces, if you're with others who haven't had vaccination, it's contextual, it's setting specific. And I think we lose some of that nuance when we try to shorten the message. And I understand from a public point of view that this is confusing, but let me be very clear, we will get out of this pandemic. We will see the light at that end of the tunnel. How quickly we get there is up to us. The CDC's guidance here in the U.S. still states that vaccinated people do not have to wear a face mask indoors. Is the CDC wrong? So I understand that the CDC's guidance has this nuance as well. You know, depending on the type of situation indoors, depending on if individuals are vaccinated, if you're with other, others that are vaccinating, what we recommend is we, we set the guidance and we let the country set the policies. Okay. Um, and it will depend on how much vaccine is 
used in that area. Um, we have to make sure that we put out the science. Our guidance is out looking specifically around the vaccines and their ability to prevent transmission. We know that the vaccines work against severe disease and death, including the Delta variant, but we don't have as much data on reducing transmission. We have good indication that it does work about preventing transmission, but that's not fully understood yet. Dr. Maria Van Kerkhove with the World Health Organization. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Every single day I can think to do, I, I was really good. I was really good. I was good. I was really good. I didn't want to be fat like that. I do not want my baby to be fat like that because I know a black man in America, you can't be like that. I try to... <laughs> As states climb their way out of the pandemic, it's tempting to think that in some ways we can put the last year and a half behind us and move on. But for many families of kids with diabetes, that is not an option. As John Yang reports, COVID-19 has left a lasting mark on both their physical and mental health. Numbers are a big part of nine-year-old Jackson Scamahorn's everyday life. Not his video game scores, he's focused on his blood sugar levels. I'm at 203 right now going up, which that's high. Every night lately you've been going high. Jackson has type 1 diabetes, an autoimmune disease that prevents his body from making insulin. That's the hormone that regulates sugar or glucose in the bloodstream. You have to do your uh, short acting. Each morning, he and his mom, Heather, carefully calculate how many sugars and carbs he can eat throughout the day and how much insulin he'll have to give himself to process them. For me, 20 carbs is about one unit, and then 30 is one and a half units. So it's a constant balancing act between blood sugar and insulin. Yes. This is once he was in ICU. Jackson's diabetes was diagnosed in February. It was about 9 p.m. and then I took him into urgent care. He'd been lethargic and nauseous. Tests found that his sugar levels were dangerously high. The doctor said actually his numbers are worse than we thought. He has cranium inflammation and he's in diabetic ketoacidosis. He needs to go to ICU. Ketoacidosis happens when blood sugar is too high too long. Ketoacidosis, how high of a, of alarm does that represent? What's, you know, code red, it's, you know, because it can, it can lead to coma, it can lead to brain swelling, it could lead to death. Pediatrician Henry Rodriguez is clinical director at the University of South Florida Diabetes Center. He says during the pandemic, more kids have been showing up at emergency rooms with dangerously high glucose levels. If you think about the, the amount of time pre-COVID, that children spend at school versus at home. You know, at school, they're in fairly, a fairly structured environment. You know, caretakers, teachers recognize, you know, if, if Sally, for instance, um, is getting up repeatedly to go use the restroom, well, that's a cardinal sign, potentially, of a high blood sugar and diabetes. Stress can also raise glucose levels. And Jackson's mom says remote learning was very stressful. He had a lot of anxiety switching classes, switching teachers. It didn't cause, I don't think, but it might have raised his glucose numbers because of the stress and put him into diabetic ketoacidosis. 
13-year-old Haley Platts was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when she was four. She says this past year has been awful. I've been a straight A student my whole entire life. My grades dropped. I struggled to pass this year because it was COVID and I'm better at school. Like I do way better at school. And my depression was just, I had no motivation or anything. There's queso. Normally Haley would be looking forward to diabetes summer camp, a chance to connect with other kids with diabetes. They can relate a lot and you don't feel like you're the only person going through it. But this summer, camp is online only. When I found out that was canceled, like I was devastated, obviously. During COVID, we were all told, isolate, withdraw. Those are the opposites of what I would recommend to someone who's attempting to properly manage both their mood and their anxiety and their diabetes. Psychologist Julie Rice says There's even no before the pandemic, children with type 1 diabetes were more likely to suffer depression. Yeah. And COVID has only made things worse. If and when you're depressed, it's still an issue or problem in the sense that you frequently neglect a lot of self-care. Sometimes when like I go super high and my insulin is like running out and like my pump dies, I feel like, oh, I can just do it in a minute, but turns into like hours, maybe a day and I didn't do it and my pump just shuts off and I go super high. It sounds like it's almost like a, a cycle. You feel badly, so you don't take care of yourself. Yeah. As a result of that, you, your blood sugar, you feel badly and it just sort of compounds on itself. A recent study from the University of South Alabama found diabetic children's average blood sugar levels increased during quarantine, likely due to the change in routine, more snacking, less exercise, and increased stress. The worst outcomes were among black and economically disadvantaged children. That's worrisome because high glucose can lead to long-term health complications, like heart disease and nerve damage. They tried to send us hyperallergenic pumps. The pandemic has also caused a strain on parents. Haley's mom, Heather Platts, who also has type 1 diabetes, has been racking up extra hours as a hospital nurse because of COVID. I get the text messages, the emails about them being short-staffed all the time, and it's balanced between like wanting to help them out, needing the money to get the overtime, and being home for my family. The money helps pay the high price of managing her and Haley's diabetes. Even with insurance, vital medical supplies can cost thousands of dollars a year. Platts considers herself one of the lucky ones because she has insurance. The American Diabetes Association estimates that during the pandemic, 12% of people with diabetes had their health insurance disrupted by job loss, and 25% rationed medical supplies to save money. It shouldn't be like, oh, your insurance isn't as good or you're not, you're you know, underinsured, so you can't have these fancy gadgets that could save your life. You know, it's just not fair. Since his diagnosis, Jackson Scamahorn has become pretty good at harmonizing his sugar intake with insulin injections to keep his blood sugar stable. That's allowing him to do more of the things he loves, like playing in the pool with his little brother Landon. I can last five hours outside now. <laughs> About five hours before I want to lay down now. Helping him get back in the swim of things. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm John Yang in Tampa, Florida.
The farmer in the dell, the farmer in the dell. Hi ho, the dairy o, the farmer in the dell. The USDA was supposed to provide some four billion dollars in debt relief to black farmers this month as part of the American Rescue Plan. The funding has been touted as a way to address historical government discrimination against farmers of color, but two court rulings have put the funding on hold. WFAE's Grayson Doctor reports. Wisdom Jazar weeds the garden beds on his farm before moving to pull fresh eggs from the chicken coop. Jazar is the owner and head farmer at Deep Roots CPS Farm, an urban farm on a quarter of an acre in northwest Charlotte. Jazar and his team specialize in urban agriculture to create organic food options for urban communities. But he has another mission to increase the number of black farmers in the industry. We understand the need for us in this space to be at the table when policies regarding farming is concerned, to have a say and be able to, you know, put a voice in that is not been represented for so long in that space. Jazar is a first generation farmer. He doesn't have a loan from the USDA, but he says debt relief for black farmers is crucial, especially for older farmers that often had higher interest rates on loans and stricter stipulations than white farmers. They could not miss a single payment. They, was, they were basically giving the loans, hoping for them to fail so they can do a land grab. So that's happened so much. And you get farmers who breaking their necks just to pay off the loans so they can hold on to their, uh, land. It's a problem that's been well documented. In 1865, the government promised newly freed slaves in the South 40 acres and a mule, only to snatch it back months later, killing an opportunity to build generational wealth. A 1982 report by the U.S. Commission of Civil Rights found that black farmers faced racial discrimination and lack of institutional economic support. Meanwhile, commercial lending practices and tax structures geared to benefit large farm operations have led to a decline in black farmers. By 1997, the number of black farmers decreased by 98%, leaving 18,500 black farmers. As of 2017, black farmers made up 1.3% of the industry, while white farmers made up roughly 95%. The USDA reports there are about 2,000 black farmers in North Carolina, compared to 70,500 white farmers. Archie Hart, who works with small and minority farms at the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, says the decrease is mostly due to an unlevel playing field for black farmers. They were not being served like other farmers. And even when they were serviced, one of the biggest problems that we find is that even when a farmer went in to put in a loan application, they would take so long to get them the monies. They could not uh, produce a crop or be able to provide for their families or to maintain a homestead. Farmers received $26 billion during the COVID-19 pandemic under the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. Of that, Black farmers only received $21 million. Charlotte farmer Wisdom Jazar says the discrepancy has been devastating. If you're still using a mule while other farmers are getting subsidized, to get used tractors and the newest equipment, newest processing equipment, and getting education subsidized, then you can't compete. Congress and President Biden intended for the American Rescue Plan to provide relief. It includes $4 billion for the USDA to pay up to 120% of loan balances for socially disadvantaged farmers, 
or farmers of color, who had loans backed or guaranteed by the Farm Service Agency. Payments were to begin going to farmers this month. However, lawsuits against the USDA filed by two groups of white farmers, one in Wisconsin and the other in Florida, have stalled the payouts. If they want to fix past discrimination, they can go and fix past discrimination. That's Dan Lennington, an attorney at the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. His group represents 12 farmers from nine states. They're calling for the government to treat everyone the same, regardless of race, when it comes to paying off loans. Just forgiving everybody's loans unconnected to pass discrimination is what we're challenging. But Archie Hart with the Department of Agriculture says it's not just about fixing past discrimination. He says it's about creating an equitable industry for all farmers involved and giving farmers of color the same opportunities for success as white farmers. You put a hole in the roof of a house and a hurricane comes up. Then after the hurricane is gone, you repair the roof. Well, the house is still destroyed and it's still wet and all of that. While the program is stalled in the courts, Lennington says Congress needs to address the fate of the program. Until then, black farmers are left to do what they've been doing for years. Wait. For WFAE News, I'm Grayson Doctor. Black babies cost less. Time for StoryCorps. Today, two women, friends and colleagues remember the birth of their children. My name is Shantae Renee Davies-Balch. I'm 38. My name is Sabrina Michelle Beavers. I'm 35. Also in the room is my little newborn daughter. Her name is Destiny Serena Cole Johnson, and she's five weeks. Shantae and Sabrina both delivered their babies prematurely. Here's Shantae. I remember when I heard that your water broke, I felt sad. People talk about pregnancy glow and being able to deliver full term. I didn't get that experience. I would have appreciated having that extra time with her in utero to build that bond and for her to come out as healthy as possible. I felt kind of cheated out of the last part of my pregnancy. You know, I had two babies that were born preterm, and I remember feeling depressed because I was like, I took my folic acid. I even had a spreadsheet where I tracked my vegetables. (laughs) I knew a lot of friends and their families who had suffered with babies that were in the NICU for weeks or who didn't make it home. And I remember growing up seeing babies born really tiny. I didn't know there was a name for it. It was even normal to have Black women die either during birth or soon after. And it's like, well, why don't we talk about these things? Why aren't these normal conversations? Just like we talk about heart disease, diabetes, and how it runs in the family. Same thing when it comes to preterm birth. I felt very overwhelmed because it wasn't something that I was prepared for. She was born at four pounds. And how much does she weigh now? She's almost seven pounds. That's so exciting. (laughs) So I'm really proud of both of you. I know it was really hard. The only ask that I have is that for my daughter's sake and for the sake of any Black woman here now or destined to be, that we figure out how to prevent this from happening. I want this to not be normal. Well, I'm honored and really excited to continue to work with you and really honored to be your friend. And I will see you back at work. Probably another six weeks. (laughs) 
That was Sabrina Beavers and her friend Shante Davies-Balch. They work as advocates for black maternal and infant health in Fresno County, California, and their StoryCorps interview is archived at the Library of Congress. Listen, just touching on some real issues right here tonight. That's That's all. all. I want y'all to observe the excellence here. BX providing the Sonics, my man, Minnesota. I'm letting the beat ride out because it's a part that I like when it come up. You know what I'm saying? I take this time to say what's up to my family. <laughs> you hear that? You know what I'm saying? For sure. Just observe the excellence of that. That's many. Hey, back. Fall back. Uh-uh. With the guitars. It's hip-hop music. It's good enough to speak for itself. And you got to do right by it. Minnesota. Ain't no black people in Minnesota. Let's talk next about efforts to bring racial awareness to the classroom, and that's touching off an angry backlash in some Minnesota school districts. Some white parents and conservative activists are fighting teacher training programs that promote equity. They're also alarmed by any notion that systemic racism or white privilege could be taught in public schools. Our reporter Elizabeth Shockman visited one district to better understand what's behind the outrage. She has a story about this this afternoon on All Things Considered, but she joins us now with a sneak preview. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Kathy. You went to Pequot Lakes for your reporting in north central Minnesota. Why did you decide to focus on that school district? Well, about a month or two ago, I started getting emails about an equity program in Pequot Lakes School District. This is a town about two hours north of the Twin Cities near Brainerd. It's such a beautiful part of Minnesota with lots of lakes and resorts. The student population in this district is about 95% white. I really wanted to spend time uh, really understanding what was at the heart of this district's controversy, because it's a microcosm of this much broader culture war that's happening right now in schools across the country. So tell us about this fight you're seeing in education. So in our national discussion about race and racism, a lot of attention has centered on what's happening in schools. There are currently 26 states that have introduced some form of legislation aimed at restricting how teachers discuss racism and sexism. And in Minnesota, you see protests against equity programs or efforts to teach about racism in American history in districts from Lakeville to Fargo-Moorhead. Then there's the Minnesota-based conservative think tank Center for the American experiment, which is running a statewide tour to train parents to push back on these programs. So what's happening in Pequot Lakes? What set all this off? Well, it all started with a video that the superintendent helped to make about a national equity training program for teachers called SEED, which stands for Seeking Educational Equity and Diversity. Some Pequot Lakes teachers have been signing up to receive this training for the last several years. But when this video came out, people took offense. Uh, It came out a few months ago. And in the video, the superintendent said the community needed to make the district more welcoming for students of color and LGBTQ kids. The parents I spoke to said they were worried about um, teachers possibly indoctrinating Pequot Lakes children, teaching them it was bad to be white. That's a pretty common misunderstanding of the term white privilege. Let's hear from Mariah Hines. She's a white parent there who talked about her fears. It doesn't matter your individual morality. If you're white, based on your skin tone, you're an oppressor and you get to benefit from this rigged society. And, you know, so the seed project is definitely concerning. I mean, we should make really clear here that white privilege does not mean white people don't have disadvantages or that they're inherently bad. It means that their race itself hasn't hindered them in the same ways that people of color face discrimination in a system that has historically benefited white people. So what have you learned from Pequot Lakes about how the conversation on race and racism is going? 
So talking about racism or implying that it's a problem is a pretty nuclear thing to do. In Pequot, it set off a storm of emails, data requests, threats, and a, an explosive school board meeting that the local police had to help calm down. One school board member I spoke to, Kurt Johnson, has had family who's worked with the district for generations. He told me that he didn't think racism was an issue in Pequot Lakes. But then in the next breath, he gave me an example of racism from a colleague during one of his many regional rural Minnesota committee meetings. One of the people, after we're done talking, made the comment, well, maybe these people just shouldn't come. And I about fell out of my chair. And now we do know what we're talking about. And I'm not going to suggest that the need isn't there. Just don't come out of the blocks and accuse everybody of being racist to start with. So it's interesting. Johnson supports the equity training in the school. He says it's something the district needs, but he says you just can't call it racism. And that's what I saw in a lot of my interviews, people really having pretty extreme difficulty having this conversation about what racism is and how it might be having an effect in Pequot Lakes. All right, Elizabeth, thank you much. Thanks, Kathy. Little brother, I heard y'all ain't hitting in New York. Word. I heard y'all ain't hitting in L.A. Word, word. I heard y'all ain't hitting in North Carolina. North Carolina. Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools has drawn fire from two of the state's top Republicans after the superintendent hired anti-racism author Ibram X. Kendi to speak to district leaders. The superintendent says Kendi's work can help schools achieve equity. WFAE's Andos Helms reports on the latest flare-up in the national battle over how to talk about racism. When Ernest Winston took over as superintendent of CMS not quite two years ago, he said anti-racism would be central to his efforts to improve education. Last summer, amid the racial turmoil that followed George Floyd's murder, he launched a book study for district leaders using Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. Winston capped that study by hiring Kendi as the keynote speaker for the CMS Summer Leadership Conference earlier this month. He says bringing the author to a virtual meeting with hundreds of CMS administrators was a natural next step. He's one of the, the leading historians and, and anti-racist scholars in the country. CMS is a district where almost two-thirds of students are black or Hispanic. Those students, on average, trail their white and Asian classmates on most measures of academic success, as they do in most districts across the country. Kendi's work focuses on examining the history and systems that create those gaps. Winston says that mindset is behind the district's efforts to rethink things like discipline and access to rigorous classes, where racial disparities show up. A takeaway uh, from Kendi, for me, was that people who believe in equal opportunity and justice should actively work to dismantle those policies that have created those uh, different experiences for, for some students. When WBT Radio reported on the cost of Kendi's speech, a $25,000 fee, and $420 to buy 28 copies of the book, Senate Leader Phil Berger and Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson took aim at CMS. In a joint news release last week, Berger, who is white, called Kendi's ideas insidious, discriminatory, and dangerous. Robinson, who is black, said the district's decision to hire Kendi, quote, makes it clear that the left is working to bring back a racial divide and not unity. Robinson says he hasn't read Kendi's book or heard his speech to CMS leaders. He says he doesn't need to know much about the author to label Kendi a problem. I do not believe that we need to look at everything through the lens of race. I think that is a ridiculous notion. Robinson says emphasizing race promotes division and hatred. My whole thing on this is that we cannot allow 
bigotry, and I call it bigotry, disguised as social justice, to continue to weave its way into our education system. Kendi's book argues that racism is pervasive and must be addressed. He disputes the notion that it's important to label individuals racist or not racist. Instead, he writes that anyone, of any race, can engage in racist or anti-racist action. Berger says he hasn't read How to Be an Anti-Racist, but he's read other work by and about Kendi. He says Kendi's approach creates a new racism, promoting the idea that your race is determinative as to whether or not you are an oppressor or whether or not you are oppressed. Berger says he also has concerns about a focus on equity from Kendi and from educators. When he talks about a guiding principle being equity, um, but not equality, uh, I I think that's problematic because uh, the definition of equity kind of depends on who's doing the defining. In their news release, Berger and Robinson invoked a label that has become a rallying cry in culture wars, critical race theory. Kefralyn Brown, a professor at University of Texas, Austin, defines it this way. Well, CRT essentially recognizes that racism plays a founding and pivotal role in U.S. social relations. In other words, uh, racism goes back to the to at least the founding of, of this country, which means that it's sort of re- it's deeply ingrained in our social fabric. Brown spoke at a recent National Education Writers Association webinar. In North Carolina, the term critical race theory has been used by people who oppose new state social studies standards for K-12 classes. And it's central to the strife over whether Nicole Hannah-Jones, who won a Pulitzer for her work on the New York Times Magazine's 1619 project, will get tenure in her new post with UNC Chapel Hill's journalism school. The 1619 Project made the case that slavery and racism should be placed at the center of America's historic narrative. Brown says the term is often used too broadly to describe such things as diversity in hiring and the inclusion of multicultural material in classes. Superintendent Winston says it's wrong to characterize CMS instruction as critical race theory. We do not teach critical race theory in Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools. Kendi doesn't label himself a critical race theorist, But he does argue that racism is so deeply entrenched in American history and culture that it creates disparities in everything from student test scores to family wealth and income. That's the idea behind one of the quotes from How to Be an Anti-Racist that led the Robinson-Berger critique. Kendi writes that the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. That is, he explains, race-conscious policies designed to redress past wrongs. And Kendi is unabashedly anti-capitalist, one of the other points cited by the two Republicans. Kendi writes that America's slave trade gave rise to racism in order to justify making profits from enslaved black people. He calls racism and capitalism, quote, conjoined twins that must be fought together. Here's how he explained it in a 2019 NPR interview. Racist and and capitalist policies have long intersected to essentially make it such that, that let's say, black people were, were disproportionately poor and, and white people were disproportionately wealthy. When asked whether capitalism could exist without racism, he replied, It never has. CMS board member Rhonda Cheek, a Republican, says she doesn't agree with that perspective, but she does support the use of Kendi's work on dismantling racism. I'm not thinking that there's a, a lot of people here that I would agree with on everything they say, but that does not mean that there are not parts of his work that would be very valuable in improving student outcomes. CMS board member Ruby Jones, a Democrat, says she thinks Robinson and Berger would learn something from reading Kendi's book. These people have this hush-up mentality. 
because they have a discomfort about our history <laughs> and, quite frankly, our present. Meanwhile, Republicans in the North Carolina House have passed a bill along party lines that would put limits on how race is talked about in classrooms. It would prohibit public schools from teaching, for example, that, quote, an individual, solely by virtue of his or her race or sex, is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. Berger says he's troubled by the House's approach. My concern is that once you prohibit the teaching of uh, one thing in particular, uh, that, uh, that that becomes something of a standard uh, that uh, is, uh, in some respects, equivalent to book burning. But he says he expects the Senate to work out its own version of a bill to ensure that schools teach history without bias. For WFAE News, I'm Ann Doss-Helms. The Turner Diaries sold over half a million copies. Who do you think is buying it? Eric Rudolph, the Olympic bomber. Wade Page, who shut up the Sikh temple. Larry Ford, developing typhoid and cholera. William Carr with the cyanide bomb. Anthrax, ricin, botulism, C4, IEDs. I could go on like this for hours, and all of them are white supremacists. Earlier this month, President Biden released the country's first national strategy for countering domestic terrorism, which he called a stain on the soul of America. The threat of domestic terrorism is not new in this country, but the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th has amplified the issue. Some experts say that law enforcement strategies alone won't stop right-wing radicals. They believe a better strategy is stopping them from becoming radicalized in the first place. NewsHour Weekend Zachary Green has more as part of our ongoing series exploring hate, anti-Semitism, racism. In the 1990s, Germany was facing a surge in violent incidents involving white supremacists. The skinhead movement came up, large-scale attacks against refugee shelters, for example, using arson attacks or just beating up uh, immigrants or refugees on streets and uh, political opponents. They tried to dominate whole parts of cities or even villages with that strategy. Daniel Kohler is the director of the German Institute on Radicalization and De-Radicalization Studies, or GERDS. He says that while violent right-wing extremism had existed in Germany since after World War II, it was only in the 90s that public outcry forced the government to take action. This was actually when the German government decided to put significant amounts of federal funding into non-governmental civil society-based preventing and countering violent extremism programs, mainly targeting adolescents, teenagers, uh, the youth in general that were considered to be, you know, frustrated with a lack of perspectives coming from broken family backgrounds. Since then, the German government has poured resources into public-private partnerships to prevent far-right radicalization from happening in the first place. Methods developed from these partnerships include teaching students about democratic values, providing mental health and job counseling, and educating youths on how radicalization works, such as in this play performed for German teens. The target groups for these tools are usually teenagers, families, communities, social workers, mental health service providers, to educate them, to provide them with the necessary tools and knowledge to respond to a potential case of a radicalization when they might come across uh, such a case. 
Germany spends roughly $180 million a year on its civil society programming. Kohler says that while far-right extremism is still a problem in Germany, the U.S. lacks the same infrastructure in dealing with its own right-wing radicalization issues. And 2017's Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, added a new layer of complexity to the problem of white supremacy in the U.S. Cassie Miller is an analyst with the Southern Poverty Law Center. Unite the Right really revealed the limits of mass mobilization and organizing through these mainstream political channels. Um, a lot of the groups were infiltrated um, by law enforcement, by anti-fascists, and by journalists. A lot of them got caught up in lawsuits that are still ongoing, and that really, really hampered their organizing abilities. They didn't feel like the political system offered them the tools that they needed to create the kind of revolutionary change that they wanted to see in society. According to a report published by the Southern Poverty Law Center, the number of hate groups operating in the U.S. between 2018 and 2020 actually dropped by almost 18 percent. But Miller says that doesn't mean white nationalists have become less numerous or less dangerous. Instead, many have retreated to online communities on social media. It used to be that white nationalist extremist groups had to meet people in person, they had to give people their literature in person, and now the bar has been significantly lowered and they can reach much, much wider audiences with way less effort. And what we're seeing is that there's a proliferation of white nationalist and extremist propaganda across the internet um, and often on platforms that are really not interested in regulating the kind of content that people place on them. Miller says that online propaganda can have real-world consequences. For example, the shooter in the 2018 attack on the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh was inspired by racist and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories on the white supremacist social media site Gab. And the culprit in the 2019 El Paso shooting posted an anti-immigrant manifesto on the online message board 8chan minutes before he opened fire. If you look at the kind of content that those attackers were posting online or the manifestos that they posted, that kind of content is all over the Internet. And it's really become normalized through repetition. When you believe that, then violence becomes a much more kind of reasonable solution in your mind. Even the failed January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol was fomented by online misinformation about the 2020 election. Some of the insurrectionists even used the fringe social media sites Gab and Parler to trade information on what streets to take to avoid the police and what tools to bring to break into the Capitol. In response to the attack, this March, the Department of Homeland Security made $20 million in funding available for local communities to develop programs to prevent domestic violent extremism. But that's still only 11% of what Germany spends annually on countering radicalization amongst its own population, which is just a quarter of the size of the U.S. In fact, just last year, in the face of the worst rise in far-right crime since 2001, the German government approved more than $1.2 billion in anti-racism programming over the next three years. The United States is behind most Western European countries 20 to 30 years at least, when it comes to building these infrastructures, you cannot just jumpstart them or kickstart them in a matter of months or even years. You have to build these networks, these programs, you have to build relationships, and you have to test really how certain methods work in a certain community. And these infrastructures, they need to grow organically. Cynthia Miller-Idris is researching how to do that very thing. 
She heads up the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, or PERIL, at American University in Washington, D.C. It's modeling its methods for preventing extremist violence on Germany's. They have models for how to do this in a more community-based way. And so a lot of what I'm trying to do is learning from those approaches and adopting them here in the States. It is kind of possible and manageable and something that you can be empowered to do within your own community instead of waiting um, sort of for the government to solve it, which is, I think, what a lot of people are feeling right now. Peril creates teaching and parenting guides on recognizing online propaganda and also produces videos like this one about a man becoming part of an online extremist group. Misinformation about gun control was circulating wildly, including rumors that the National Guard was going to go door to door to confiscate weapons. Their research shows that, on average, those who watched it became more skeptical of information on social media and alternative news sites, and more likely to fact-check news stories before trusting them. Miller Idris likens these methods to inoculation against disease. By teaching people about how to recognize far-right propaganda and misinformation, they can build up a resistance to it when they encounter it online. It turns out that people don't like to find out that they're being manipulated, and um, they, are, they are able to then build their own counter-arguments against it so that when they do encounter it out there in the real world, uh, they're able to have resistance to it. And once you see that manipulative technique, you can recognize it wherever you encounter it. So it, it works like a vaccine, right? It creates immunization or inoculates people against the propaganda wherever they encounter it. But Miller Idris also says that the U.S. has a long way to go in building the infrastructure to effectively confront far-right radicalization. Police in L.A., man, they got a chokehold they use on motherfuckers. Do they do it here? They choke you to death? That's some weird shit. Because I didn't know it was a death penalty to have a parking ticket. <laughs> you know what I mean? They'll choke a motherfucker's life. Hey, wait, that means you be dead. <laughs> Two grab your legs, one grab your head, they go, snap! Oh, shit, he broke. <laughs> can you break him? Does it say so in the manual? Let's check. Yep, page eight, you can break a nigger, see? Good work, man, good work. Good work, indeed. Let's get there. First here at five, though, the Mecklenburg County District Attorney says a U.S. Marshal who shot and killed a man will not face charges. This happened at an East Charlotte gas station back in March. We're told Frankie Jennings was wanted on several warrants. He was with his family when marshals tried to arrest him and ultimately shot and killed. Today, the DA also released never-before-seen surveillance video from that gas station showing the moments before he was shot. And our own Brandon Goldner is live for us at that gas station with the very latest. Brandon, we know a lot to unpack here, but essentially the takeaway, the DA ultimately decided that this shooting was justified, but family members say that they're disappointed, right? That's right, Vanessa and Fred. Uh, the real question is whether this incident and whether Frankie Jennings, when he was in his car at pump number one, whether his actions constituted an imminent threat. The Mecklenburg County DA released this 76-page report saying yes, but his family attorneys say no. Frankie Jennings is in the white shirt. He's pumping gas into his fiance's car. A little boy is in the back seat. As he finishes up, U.S. Marshals in unmarked SUVs with flashing blue lights swerve in. Jennings moves to his Mercedes. Officers in tactical vests close behind. They try to pull him out of the car. What happens here when this police SUV pulls in front of Jennings, blocking our view, is what's at the center of the differing opinions between the DA and the Jennings family. The DA says as that gray SUV tries to block Jennings in, the Mercedes starts to move, with Senior Inspector Eric Tillman trying to pull Jennings out. 
Tillman claims as the car moved forward, he saw it was going to hit the officers pulling in front of Jennings. Tillman then claims Jennings tried to reach for this handgun in the center console cup holder. That's when Tillman says he shot and killed Jennings. District Attorney Spencer Merriweather felt Tillman reasonably feared for he and his fellow marshals' safety when he fired his gun. Ken Harris is one of the attorneys representing Jennings' surviving family, and he disagrees. I am still unaware of any threat that Mr. Jennings posed in an imminent manner to anyone involved in the interaction. He also questioned Tillman's claim that Jennings was reaching for a gun. The other question that we're vetting is whether or not at the exact time of the shooting, Mr. Jennings had his left hand in the air and his right hand on the steering wheel. He says the family hopes Jennings' death will inspire change in how police interact with people in these situations. And some of those Jennings family attorneys will be holding a news conference later this week to discuss the civil steps that the family will be taking next. Live along the plaza, Brandon Goldner, WCNC Charlotte. So, you know, these events that keep coming up, instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that, we, that is brought to our attention, we need to function from the position of an analysis that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy, and that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling or be it um, George Zimmerman or any of the other cases that come to our attention. There is a reason that these cases exist. And I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health, but also gun control. And we have to begin to understand, I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism, white supremacy. The gun is the answer to conscious and or subconscious, the answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. I encourage everybody to get a copy of the ISIS papers and read. Local, live, late breaking. West 2 News starts now. First night on Western News at 6, a 21-year-old man is accused in a hate crime in Volusia County. Deputies say he pointed a gun at a family and used a racial slur for no other reason than because they're black. The reason why I pulled you out is because there was the allegation of a firearm being used the other day in the vehicle. So for your, my, for my case, in yours, I... This is Sheriff's body camera video of the suspect, Nicholas Gordon, as he was arrested near DeLand. Westview's Claire Metz reports investigators say Gordon was in a car with friends when he allegedly threatened the family. You got no weapons on you, right? Face the car for me. 
Deputies on the lookout for a bright yellow Chevrolet spark following the report of a hate crime stopped Nicholas Gordon Monday. You literally fit the description of the male, white male, kind of curly hair wearing a ball cap. Gordon, here in court, is accused of pointing a gun at a black family in a vehicle next to his Sunday near DeLand. Investigators say Gordon's friend was driving Gordon, the front seat passenger, who allegedly pointed the gun at the terrified parents and two young children. There's a yellow car next to us with a gun. He's going to kill us. According to the report, the victims told deputies Gordon said, I will kill you, then use the N-word. The victim said they had never seen the suspect, the driver, and two others in the yellow car before, that the incident occurred completely unprovoked and was not an incident of road rage. There was the allegation of a firearm being used the other day in the vehicle. The victims say after the initial confrontation, Gordon and his friends followed them, that further down the road caught in traffic, the driver stepped out and yelled more obscenities. Deputies tell us they found surveillance video to support the victim's account. I just told my husband to go because my kids are in the car with me. I don't want him to shoot at hand with my kids. Investigators say suspect Gordon initially claimed he was out of town, then later said the victims backed into his car, that they were chasing the victims to exchange information. There was no damage to Gordon's car, and a hit-and-run was never reported. Deputies say Gordon told them he armed himself because... He knew the occupants were African-American, and he knew from past experiences African-Americans can be violent. Sheriff Mike Chitwood, reacting to the alleged incident, called it an abhorrent act of hate, the kind of behavior that won't be tolerated. In Volusia County, Claire Metz, West 2 News. The man, race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. The woman accused of attacking a black teenager she falsely claimed stole her cell phone at a Soho hotel was arraigned today on felony hate crime charges. 22-year-old Maya Ponceta pleaded not guilty to charges including second-degree unlawful imprisonment as a hate crime, along with child endangerment and aggravated harassment. Video of the December incident at the Arlo Hotel shows Ponceto berating and trying to tackle Keon Harold Jr., the son of jazz musician Keon Harold. The assistant district attorney showed that there were several people that came through the lobby, only two blacks and an Asian was stopped. Whites were passed by. She never accused them. Ponceto's cell phone was later found in an Uber car. Context of white supremacy. So this next segment, uh, they're doing the 50-year retrospective on the Shaft franchise. They're going to start pushing this off on Gordon Parks. All I can say, reading is more important than watching television some years back a cow's listener investor wrote a guest post on Michael Jackson I posted it on my Facebook page earlier today smooth racist Paris Jackson smooth racist is the name of the post 2013 but she included a segment talking about the franchise shaft in that article I'm just gonna read a quick paragraph she wrote The movie Shaft was created from a book series of the same name written by a white man named Ernest Tidyman. He made the black detective bisexual, the white man's dream of feminizing and homosexualizing the melanin male 
whom he always felt less manly around. White people and their use of words is notorious amongst their victims. According to White People's Dictionary, two of the meanings of shaft are penis and to trick or cheat. The man race, race, class, class, genre, genre, and the dilemmas dilemmas of black manhood. On this day 50 years ago, the acclaimed photographer and filmmaker Gordon Parks released a film called... The film was a hit for then-floundering MGM Studios. Shaft inspired a number of other films that are referred to as blaxploitation cinema. NPR's first broadcast was 50 years ago as well. So since we share an anniversary with Shaft, we're taking a moment to explore the complicated legacy of an American classic. Here's NPR's Mark Rivers. 50 years ago, cultural critic Nelson George was 13 years old, sitting in a darkened theater in Times Square. And then came the electric opening credits of Shaft. The minute he goes off the subway and we hear that wah-wah pedal kick in, we're like, whoa, yes, we're, we're in this world. On screen, a handsome black man wearing a long leather jacket over a turtleneck sweater knifes his way through New York traffic, glides through picket lines, shoots the breeze with the newspaper vendor. And just who is this man? A sultry voice breaks it down. Who's the black guy that did give us a sexy machine to hold cheeks? You damn right. You could have left the movie after that and been feeling really great about yourself. In 1971, Shaft was a revelation and a rupture from the past. Boss! Boss! Got good news for you! In the cinema of the 1930s and 40s, black men were often portrayed as servile or slow. They were caricatures. Black men were neutered in films for decades. They were also desexualized, says critic Nelson George. With the arrival of the graceful Sidney Poitier as a leading man in the 1950s, there was progress, but it was quaint. Then you had Sidney, who's sort of like attractive, handsome, but not overtly sexual. George says that following the 60s civil rights era, things changed. Audiences changed. By 7071, the world is shifting. Instead of we shall overcome, people are saying black power. And so there was a desire in the culture for not a suit and tie hero, but someone who reflected the funky, freaky things that were going on. That funk of Shaft came less from the plot than from the cool and commanding presence of its star, Richard Roundtree, who started his career as a model. I didn't even introduce myself to you gentlemen. My name is John Shaft. Freeze. And of course, from Isaac Hayes' electrifying score. The success of Shaft opened the door for films like Trouble Man and Superfly, stories of black characters facing urban decay, crime, and fighting the man. He's got a plan to stick it to the man. He's super hood, super high, super fly. Critics called them blaxploitation, a term inspired by exploitation films, late night cinema defined by sex and violence. Films that, if you were young enough when you saw one, made you feel like you got away with something. And much of the thrill came from the fact that the protagonists in these movies did get away. They won. And black characters didn't often get to win on screen. The movie came out on the eve of a recession, and studios were looking to make fast and cheap hits, says film professor Raquel Gates. And one of the things that they do is they sort of, and I, I say this jokingly in, in full sarcasm, is they remember that black people exist. Shaft was a huge hit. With a budget of half a million dollars, it grossed $12 million. 
so studios cranked these films out one after the other during the 1970s. But these films always had their critics. Some black organizations campaigned against them, saying they glorified drug dealers and violence and profited from unflattering portraits of blackness. Here's critic Nelson George again. Black people didn't feel like should have been popularized. We feel like that was pulling the race down. And to some degree, we're making ourselves look bad in front of white people. Then there were the women in these films. Many were little more than eye candy. But there was also Pam Greer. Now I'm not going to stand here and argue with you. Now you better tell me who you talk to because it's either them or you. Greer became a feminist icon for her larger-than-life action roles in films like Coffee and Foxy Brown. She told NPR in 2010 that she knew these women. My mom was Coffee and my aunt was Foxy Brown. Film scholar Raquel Gates says Greer could find a depth that wasn't always on the page. Pam Greer brings such an authentic vulnerability and fragility to her portrayal, which I think is in spite of whatever was in the script. By the 1980s, blaxploitation films largely went out of style. But if there's one aspect of their legacy that never went away, it's the music. In a conversation with Fresh Air's Terry Gross, Isaac Hayes described how he found the sound for Shaft's theme. You know, they explained the character to, to me, you know, a relentless character, always on the move, always on the prowl. And you got to get something to denote that for the main theme. I said, what can I do? And I told Willie, the drummer, I said, uh, give me that hi-hat, man, some 16 notes, you know. And he did that. And it worked. Isaac Hayes became the first African-American to win an Oscar for music. It was also a hit and paved the way for other artists to create rich soundscapes for the films that followed, like Marvin Gaye's Trouble Man score. Or Curtis Mayfield's Superfly. Again, critic Nelson George. So the early 70s is, for me, one of the peak moments of black musical expression. I mean, basically, the entire hip-hop generation of the 80s and 90s is foundational music is this music from the early 70s. I think that's true. Ali Shaheed Muhammad is a member of the group, A Tribe Called Quest. He remembers how the Shaft soundtrack first hit him. It was an album that represented a character that was a superhero for the black community, and it showed the level of genius that we are able to compose on. For years, there have been attempts to reboot films from the black exploitation era, from a new Superfly to new Shaft movies. They weren't always critical or box office success stories. Raquel Gates thinks a worthy reboot would need to do more than just feed nostalgia. What questions is it asking about power? What questions are these films asking about the sort of, you know, identity of individual black people and their relationship or their responsibilities to a larger black community? 1971 Shaft may or may not have answered these questions, but for a generation of black audiences who saw it on the big screen when it first came out, the movie was and remains a cultural touchstone. Again, Nelson George. I mean, to this day, I will tell you that I got a whole bunch of turtlenecks and leather jackets that I've worn. You know, certain days I put that thing on, and I'm, I'm Shaft. Who is the man that would risk his neck for his brother, man? Can you dig it? I can dig it. Mark Rivers, NPR News. Who's the cat that won't Yeah, sure. People tell me I look like Bill Cosby all the time. I mean, excuse me. Dr. Bill Cosby, especially when I wear these sunglasses. Gordo, it's going to be great. 
These are the 80s, man. It's the Cosby decade. America loves black people. So like I was saying, I've always believed that Cosbyness is next to godliness. <laughs> Do anybody feel bad for Bill Cosby? He was once known as America's dad, but for more than two years, the actor and comedian Bill Cosby has been in prison after being found guilty of drugging and molesting a woman. Now, the 83-year-old comedian has been released after his conviction was overturned by the highest court in the U.S. state of Pennsylvania. He's appeared outside his house with his legal team, but didn't speak to reporters. Jennifer Bongin is his lawyer. Obviously, we are thrilled to have Mr. Cosby home. Uh, he served three years of an unjust sentence. Too long, too long. He did it with dignity and principle, and he was a mentor to other inmates. Yes. He was really, as I say, doing the time. The time was not doing him. He's a classy man. And I want to say this about the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. They demonstrated that they were impervious to the court of public opinion, which, frankly, the lower courts were not. Mr. Cosby, we, we knew all along he never should have been prosecuted for this. He had every right to rely on the prosecutor's word. And they pulled the rug out from underneath him because of politics, because of the court of public opinion, and that is not how our system should operate. When that happens, there cannot be a just sentence. And if there had been a just verdict and a just sentence, we wouldn't be here fighting. But there was not a just sentence and a not a just verdict. I asked our correspondent, David Willis, who's in Washington, for more details on why Bill Cosby has been released. Well, two things appear to have led to this decision, Val. The admission into trial of witnesses related to so-called prior bad acts, including a deposition that Bill Cosby gave back in 2005-2006 relating to the use of quaaludes during consensual sexual encounters with women in the 1970s. The Supreme Court ruled that a trial judge was uh, at fault in allowing that deposition to be admitted into evidence. The other matter is an agreement from a local prosecutor that Bill Cosby would not be criminally charged if he agreed uh, to testify in a civil lawsuit filed against him by the same accuser, Andrea Constand. Now, that civil lawsuit was settled for more than $3 million back in 2006, but the original prosecutor's successor later brought criminal charges against Bill Cosby in 2015. So this verdict by the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania appears to have taken those matters into account in deciding Bill Cosby was denied a fair trial. So basically, complicated as it is, that the trial was tainted. What's been reaction there to this news? Well, so far, um, no reaction from prosecutors in this case. They've yet to say whether they intend to appeal against this verdict today. And uh, I might add that uh, despite all the allegations against him, um, in the late 2000s, Bill Cosby has maintained strenuously that he never engaged in non-consensual sex. As you can imagine, considerable media fanfare here. And is that an end to it? Well, it may well result in uh, prosecutors appealing against this verdict, but um, I would have thought that there will be strenuous opposition from Bill Cosby's lawyers. This may well be the end of it as far as he is concerned. David Willis. (laughs) 
In 2018, Bill Cosby, who was then 81, was convicted on three felony counts of aggravated indecent assault and sentenced to serve at least three years and up to 10 years in prison. In May of 2021, Cosby was denied parole, due in part to his refusal to participate in a program for sexually violent offenders. On Wednesday, Bill Cosby was released from prison after the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania overturned his conviction due to a procedural issue. Joining me now is Jamie Floyd, Senior Editor for the Race and Justice Unit at New York Public Radio. Jamie, thank you so much for being here. Hello, Melissa. So how did this happen? Well, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, as you say, sided with Bill Cosby and his attorneys in an argument they've been making throughout both criminal trials he went through and the appeals, which is that a former district attorney in the county where he has a home and where this alleged assault took place had made a promise to Bill Cosby that he would not be prosecuted if he agreed uh, to participate in some other civil litigation, because civil litigation is obviously doesn't land you, land you in jail. And Cosby believed that was binding. So after the promise was made, and when Andrea Constance's allegations first came to life, he did go on to give sworn testimony in a civil trial, and he incriminated himself. He said things that were damaging, deeply damaging, uh, in the criminal context. Things um, like he would sometimes give drugs to women that he wanted to have sex with. He claimed that he only shared that information because he never thought he'd be charged in the criminal context. And the justices said, Melissa, that these promises should have been kept. And it's not an acquittal. They're not saying that Bill Cosby is innocent. This is critically important to to say uh, because the victims here are devastated. But it's also not a technicality. You were right to call it a procedural issue. You have a Fifth Amendment right in this country not to incriminate yourself in the criminal context. And it is inviolable. It's one of the ones we hold most dear, right? That's why you get a Miranda warning, all of that kind of thing. And here he spoke against his interest in court. He gave testimony under oath, believing that the prosecutor would honor the promise. And when he did that, it was a violation, the court said, of that Fifth Amendment right. So it's not a a substantive acquittal, but it's more than a technicality. They are sending a signal to prosecutors, Hmm. don't make promises you're not going to keep. I want to just go into that one more step, because, you know, (laughs) I'm a survivor. I know not only for survivors, but for so many of us, we saw this moment, um, and it feels like such an injustice. But I'm also someone deeply committed to uh, criminal justice yes. reform and and real criminal justice, and so on the procedural account, if we can if we can take the Bill Cosby out of it, right, yes. it actually does matter to have that Fifth Amendment right protected. And if a prosecutor makes that promise to have that be binding, it, it would be deeply troubling in the long term for that not to be binding. Right, and and I think this is why talking about. The Cosby case matters. It's not because he's a big celebrity, but the reason it matters is for the reasons you just stated. We have victims here who uh, allege horrific things happen to them and the system they feel is failing them. But as you point out, there are so many uh, black and brown men in prison 
who have intersected with the criminal justice system in ways that have failed them. And so prosecutors cannot make promises to the counsel for criminal defendants and then not honor those promises. And we certainly have to honor uh, the, the Fourth Amendment search and seizure requirements and the Fifth Amendment uh, right to uh, not testify against yourself, a right against self-incrimination. And when prosecutors, again, make promises, they have to keep them. And what happened here, just to be clear, Melissa, is the first prosecutor made the promise. The Bill Cosby case actually predates the Me Too movement, as many people will remember. The movement happens, and then a new prosecutor comes in, and he says, well, I am not going to live by this. In the midst of this movement, we must honor these women and wants to, with, with, with noble intentions, prosecute Bill Cosby. But the court said, no, no, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has to honor its promises to those whom it is prosecuting. Ooh, Jamie Floyd is the yeah. senior editor <laughs> for sweet. the Race and Justice Unit at New York Public Radio and is helping us to walk through the differences between law and justice and fairness mm -hmm. and what feels good and what feels right and what just has Thank to you. be. and. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, July 3, 2021. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, questions, uh, suggestions you would like to offer. The number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. So many things to share for the week. Let's see. One, we should be here on Monday. Brian S. Bentley. He is a victim of racism, black male, uh, but he is a former LAPD officer uh, who has talked about the exact events that we are reading in the book club, Randall Sullivan's Labyrinth, uh, which is the basis for the film City of Lies. Uh, we just started it not that long ago. Uh, Mr. Bentley put all of this in context, as Dr. Welsing would say, her metaphor, connecting the dots. Uh, Rodney King, the subsequent riots, the O.J. Simpson trial, uh, the assassination of Christopher Wallace, the killing of black LAPD officer Kevin Gaines, all of the Geronimo Pratt kind of putting all of this in context and particularly from a black LAPD officer who was working during all of this and hearing he knew Kevin Gaines and all of that. So that should be this Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. If you're uh, following the book club, 
by Warrior. I guess if you're not following the book club, again, this is all connected to O.J. Simpson. We did three in a row. Uh, this is our uh, trifecta with the Geronimo Pratt biography, O.J. Simpson, Jeffrey Tubin's work, and now this uh, Randall Sullivan's Labyrinth. Wow, it is amazing because just to keep hearing some of the same folks and hearing how all of this evolved over the deck, fascinating. Cannot wait until Monday and uh, the book club, I guess if you are somewhat interested in the component of white supremacy racism with the murders of Tupac Shakur and Christopher Wallace, the book club, white deception. Wow, the book club and then Mr. Bentley on Monday. Invest if you think the cows is constructive. Uh, hit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. Actually, had <clears throat> one of our listeners in Japan messaged me and said, "I want to make sure is your donate button is it at Black Talk Radio Network?" Uh, Mr. Reed, much obliged. He said, is it the one there or is it I want to make sure that I'm supporting the cows? I said, just hit the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. You'll see the PayPal button top right corner. We are also on cash app, cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Enormous thanks to all of the investors who have supported, uh, kept the cows on the air for almost 13 years, which is crazy. Uh, It's sad we haven't solved this problem yet, but we'll just keep at it until we get the work done. But hopefully the cows has been worthy of your time and energy. Uh, You can also visit the Amazon wish list. Uh, It is listed under Gus T. Renegade. Uh, again, huge gratitude to all the folks who have nabbed an item or three over the past 12 years. Uh, I hope the cows has provided accurate information on what white supremacy racism is, how it works, and things that we can and should be doing to try to solve this problem as soon as possible. Not another 13 years, really, if we can help it. Not another 13 minutes. Urgency. With the wish list, I will connect this directly to the heat. Man, we had a uh, investor. I was writing online uh, as we were going through the sweltering heat in Seattle. It's a little bit warm here today, but I mean nothing ridiculous. Let's see if I can give it give accurate temperature update. I, I would suspect it's probably like 82 degrees or something like that. Let's see what the weather is. Uh, it is currently... Fuji's in the background. Thinks is it eighty? Is it given the exact eighty-two? It's right there, eighty-two degrees. Which here, because we don't have humidity, is lovely. I mean, it is warm, but it's not unbearable at all. Like a lovely weather, you could be outside grilling, practicing racism, practicing counter-racism. Lots. I spent a lot of time outside today. Uh, a listener said, hey, Gus, why don't you, you know, put an AC unit? They have the little, you know, one room units and things. Why don't you put that on your wish list? I'm sure a uh, listener, one or two might be willing to invest to get you air conditioning to make it a little more comfortable. Uh, I said, oh, man, that's awesome. You know, idea to, to think of or what have you. Uh, but Seattle, the normal daytime high for Seattle in June is 71 degrees. And more importantly, 
the nighttime low is generally in the 60s even in June in fact even in July uh, we just do not have super warm weather and especially not in the evening that's what made uh, the early part of this week and the end of last week so I was going to say historic but that doesn't really capture it I think they said this was a once in a thousand year event and it was it was in the heat at night I think really captures I think one night I checked it was 78 degrees Fahrenheit here it was 73 in Atlanta that's how absurd it like it's never warmer here at night than in Atlanta like here it's in the 60s sometimes in the 50s like I never can keep my window open at night here in the summertime because it's freezing you might need the heat at times <laughs> we had the heat on I said that we had the heat on in June literally days before the heat wave and soon but wow it was uh, especially this past Monday when it was 108 degrees wow I can't even wow it was uh it was and the temperature dropped that was when the heat wave abetted was monday evening the temperature dropped from about 108 fahrenheit to 67 monday within a span of about 12 hours it was just to be outside and to feel it dropping that rapidly was extraordinary uh and the release oh my goodness it almost felt like if you could imagine yeah i won't even make the metaphor it was amazing um all of that said though the heat they talked about the impact on health and increase in deaths in oregon and here and parts of canada all of the impact on crops they said funny looking potatoes and blueberry season and all the rest of it all of that seriously considered yes white people were living their best life don't be mistaken or confused they said a lot of the white people who had means all it meant was that they went and rented hotel rooms where there was AC or rented Airbnbs where there was AC or they went to the pool the lake Seattle has so many beaches like dozen or at least a good dozen or so beaches lakes and what have you uh, to go swim I was at Green Lake which is one of my favorite places in Seattle there was a pink flamingo float. I took a picture, posted it online. Again, difficult to capture the scale. I found this float on Amazon. It retails on Amazon for $600 US. The dimensions listed 16 feet wide. That's more than five yards, five meters more than, and nine feet tall that would be three meters in height the picture you can see the scale somewhat but I mean it's hard to appreciate from a picture as opposed to standing and seeing the enormity of this float and again we live in Seattle you can use a device like that probably for maybe two months out of the 12 month year by like September the leaves start changing at the end of July here I'll put it that way you might get a few days in September where you could use such a thing but I mean woo short window living there they had the sup board stand up paddle boards and the dog out on the paddle living their best life I saw no evidence of oh my gosh we're gonna die and we can't take it and the sun is leaning on us hard living their best life next uh, 
Let's see. Oh, and the shade, man, they talked about the shade. That's one thing that I can say for Seattle. Being here, where, again, the scale of what happened, they said Seattle has had in the recorded history by white people, this city has had a total of six days where the temperature was above, was 100 degrees or higher. Three of those six days were last Saturday, last Sunday, and Monday just for scale anyway it makes such an enormous difference having shade trees uh, as opposed to just being surrounded by asphalt Uh, like I went and took pictures I took pictures of the ducks at Green Lake on uh, Monday it was 108 degrees I took a picture of the flamingo that day just being at the water and it makes such a difference in terms of your health and being able to help in a healthy manner cope with the heat and contrast that with Atlanta. I think we had that blasphemous report a few weeks back. Like imagine yourself transported from an all white environment like Minneapolis or someplace like that to Peachtree in Atlanta. Like, oh, my God, like surrounded by asphalt and concrete and all that heat and humidity stifling that's what i think like i don't even know if they have lakes plural where you could go to cool off in atlanta like ye next let's see they had the segment they talked about uh the impact of covid-19 on children with diabetes uh and not being able to get out and not being able to get exercise and then maybe eating a little bit more cuz of being stuck at home and what have you uh exercise diet like when they talked about generations and all of that diet makes such a huge impact uh, that cannot be overstated diet when you're trying to conceive diet while you are pregnant particularly diet the first few years of that child's life when their taste buds are being developed it is so critically important diet uh, and just having access to quality foods and I would say especially also uh, really eliminating I mean we could say greatly minimizing but it should be eliminating non-water beverages that's just one of the critical ways or significant I'll say where there's so much unnecessary sugar consumption uh, with the sodas and fruit drinks and all the rest water water drinking water so that people do not have all those uh, unnecessary sugar addictions and cavities and unnecessary calories uh, from just goofy beverages and that includes all the concoctions at Starbucks with caffeine and sugar get you addicted to that water get a blender um the stress on the children. We talked about how or rising suicide rates for black children. We talked about that a few weeks back, having it presented again, a very important check in with your children. Next segment, they talked about where they talked to the two black moms, Sabrina Mitchell Beavers and destiny, Serena, Nicole, uh, and they taught Johnson, excuse me, destiny, Serena, Nicole Johnson. Uh, and, uh, well, that was her, her daughter, And they talked to these two black mothers who both had premature children, diet, the stress of racism, white supremacy, all the toxins. We talked about all the reasons why uh, that is important. We talked about that in my prenatal uh, training as well. Uh, But I thought it was so 
an indictment of white supremacy, racism. And we talked about this in prenatal teacher training, prenatal yoga teacher training as well. One of the black mothers or they both said Miss Beavers and, and they both they said, well, you know, hey, well, I'll see you back at work in about five weeks. Now, she just she didn't just say that she just gave birth. She said she just had a premature birth and it's I'll see you back at work in a few weeks like that is the barbarous nature of so-called health care in the system of racism white supremacy particularly for black mothers remember we talked about uh, maternal leave paternal leave when we had some of our guests from other parts of the world and they were talking about astronomical amounts of time but you could be out for an entire year and still get like 60% 70% of your salary even longer in some cases and still be paid much less back five weeks or so to I mean Universal man, universal woman, that would be, you know, something you couldn't even believe. Like, they used to do what? That must be a deal. You're, 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 what's the metaphor? You're pulling my leg. You're making that up. They, they didn't do that. That's just sad. You can't even make that up. I wouldn't treat my worst enemy that way. Next. Um, they talked about the segment with it. So we had a couple where they talked about critical race theory. Uh, And the nonsense language that they used in Minnesota was they said that, hey, critical race theory and all of this is not saying that white people are all bad inherently and all the rest. It's just talking about the ways that this system hasn't hindered white people and has benefited white people. If we just spent all this time chin wagging about Black Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they dropped a bomb on the Negras. Are you going to tell me that the way to explain that is that Black Wall Street and that purge, well, it didn't hinder white people and benefited them. That's the best language to explain that. Or since we talked about North Carolina, so if we talked about the Wilmington massacre, 1898, that's the best language to articulate that purge of Negras that we didn't hinder the white residents of Wilmington and in fact benefited them deliberate dedicated terrorism and a lot of willful lying not even using correct words to describe what it is we're talking about in the land of George Floyd no less incidentally they're not even talking about this in a serious accurate manner and you've got all of these white parents who are upset to me that just further illustrates the dedication and the absurdity of the notion that white people are ignorant about racism incidentally we had so many reports this week there was an extra one there was a school where white children were accused of throwing in fact it was more than an accusation because they stripped an athletic championship from them they were throwing tortillas at some of the so-called latinx students and they said, man, this is incorrect, so-called racist behavior. We're going to take your championship. And I said, man, they didn't say they were throwing fried chicken. They didn't say they were throwing chopsticks. They didn't say they were throwing watermelon. They said they were throwing tortillas at the so-called Latino students. It's not just, in my view, an act of white supremacy racism. Again, that's not this didn't just, you know, didn't hinder the white students and benefited them. I don't even know what the benefit is in throwing tortillas at another person. But this is, in my view, hey, 
racist child, racist man, racist woman. They're not ignorant about racism. In fact, that shows specification. Not the watermelon this time, not the fried chicken. Save that till next time around. Get the tortillas. Next, they say uh, they talked about critical race theory in North Carolina. Uh, the black male who got the fee, let me make sure I'm saying his uh, name accurately, Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, victims guaranteed qualified. They say he was compensated $25,000. I hope he gets to go back again, and I hope he gets to go back every summer. In fact, and they will pay him $75,000 next time, maybe even $750,000 next time. Get as much as you can, Mr. Kendi. All of that said, he said what he said. Any, really, if a white person, they quoted him as saying that Mr. Mr. Uh, Kendi says that, hey, anybody can be racist. That's all I need to hear right there. I can see how you can get, you know, 25K, 50K, 700K. Anybody can be racist. Bigotry, yes. Got it. Totally understand. That would be another one, seeing white people's response, even to someone who is not really speaking about this in an accurate manner, shows me the dedication. And I suspect there was probably some genuine, what they call it, white rage. You are going to pay this Negro what? 25 what? I could lynch Bill Cosby right now. $25,000 to come into North Carolina to kill Michael Jordan too. That's I said. I mean, you want to talk about some disgruntled uh, white people, race suspects? Like, wow, twenty-five k for a Negro for this. Next. Oh, they had the, the metaphor. The metaphor. Uh, they took aim. I thought that was so important in a system of racism, white supremacy, the gun culture and all of that. They took aim. That was the language used. And they had a black person who was quoted in that report, Mr. Robinson. They pointed to make sure that they used the language. Say, hey, this is a black person who also was upset about this. Robinson says he hadn't read Kendi's book or heard his speech to the fellow North Carolinians. He says he doesn't need to know much about the author to label Kendi a problem. Wow. Now, is that the approach that we take for white people? I don't need to read your material. I don't need to know anything about you. You, black male, are a problem, just like that Bill Cosby. Even going up a little bit, let me see. Oh, he continues. This is Mr. Robinson, black male. I do not believe that we need to look at everything through the lens of race metaphor. Robinson said Friday, I think that is a ridiculous notion. Once again, victims guaranteed qualified oh and he continues my whole thing on this is that we cannot allow bigotry and i call it bigotry disguised as social justice to continue to weave its way into our education system victims guaranteed qualified although i look at that word bigotry too every time like hmm, what does that mean exactly uh but i hope they bring mr kendy uh back seventy-five thousand dollars next time i'm not surprised that they can find victims probably be mandatory to find at least one or two victims black people to also say yeah we don't want this guy coming here earning twenty five thousand dollars to talk this nonsense to our north carolina children last thing i'll get in we'll get to 
the callers, all of the commentary on. Oh, Shaft, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'll say something about Shaft, and then I'll hush y'all can share about Bill Cosby. Man, reading is more important than watching television. I have so thoroughly enjoyed our study session around the L.A. history and O.J. Simpson, Geronimo Pratt, now with the Tupac and notorious B.I.G. assassinations. But, wow, the next book for the book club needs to be the white man's book on Shaft. Like, no ifs, no ands, no buts. I'm going to see if I can get Mel to do the narration. But, I mean, you want to talk about homoeroticism and black misandry. Ernest Tidy Man. Even the name, Ernest Tidy Man. (laughs) This is the creation. And I thought for NPR to do a whole eight-minute segment, and they don't mention, oh, yeah, this came from the writing of a white man who thought of this black male sexy character as a bisexual figure. What does that mean for how we process this 50-year franchise? And that even crops up in the film. One, we could just stop with the name. I mean, you heard what I read. Our victim, Bruce Fine, she, black female, wrote the guest post on my blog. You can check out her passage. And in fact, we had a program with Andre Seawood some years back on The Cows, where we talked about this, just the name alone. I think James Baldwin uh, has a passage with Margaret Mead, suspected racist, where he says that black males are thought of as just walking phallic symbols right there. The cultural icon of American cinema, black exploitation, shaft, literally calling him a penis. And then the music and all of I mean. You have to maybe watch Shaft one time with that way of thinking that is this the or this is the homoerotic creation of a white man and then watch Shaft walking black penis then what who's just walking around in black leather and people have even commented like man at this time period so what we think of black males walking around in black leather jackets is not Dr. P. Newton Geronimo Pratt, Asada Shakur, Dr. Afini Shakur Davis. No, 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 no. It's the homoerotic fiction of a white man. Shaft. Penis. Incidentally, white people can take some music and put it on some trash, something that's non-constructive, and get all that. You can hear the music thumping in the background, right? Non-constructive. But Isaac Hayes, victim of white supremacy. Curtis Mayfield, which is that, all that entire soundtrack for Superfly is so contradictory to the movie. But, wow, it will pull you into a super non-constructive film that, uh, much like Tupac in the Chronic and Death Row, got lots of black people uh, to glorify super non-constructive behaviors so they could be super predators. For our current president, right? Hillary Clinton, former president. But they can take some really powerful music and pair it with trash and do a lot of damage. There's a long record of them doing that. Incidentally, even the language within that report, they said they wanted to imagine a character on the prowl. That's the way you talk about animals, isn't that's the way you talk about a panther on the prowl 
or or you talk about a person who is a potential criminal, right? That's what you call prowlers. And then they said, I wanted to think about someone who's out doing his freaky, freaky. I've said that, you know, I think the Milwaukee Bucks might be going to the finals, would be for them. Uh, Wisconsin and Jeffrey Dahmer, all the above. They lock up a lot of black males in Wisconsin. Even some of the Milwaukee Buck players have got locked up. Uh, but freak and then freaky, something maybe sexual, sexually perverse. Again, this is the homoerotic fiction of a white man who's supposed to be freaky and on the prowl. And then you get your turtleneck and your leather jacket. I'm Shaft, the homoerotic fiction of a white man. What does that mean? That's a metaphor, too. What does that mean? I put on my leather jacket, and I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's whole generations because they've remade Shaft so many times, Sam Jackson and the late John Singleton. Uh, what is it? I put on my leather jacket and I walk down the street. Shaft. What does that mean? Do you have any superpowers? Can you fly now? What happens being Shaft? Reading is more important than watching television. The Cows Book Club, Ernest Tidyman. Shaft. I was going to comment about Bill Cosby, but Black Miss Andrew will. All I'll say is Melissa Harris Perry has a white parent, Cowbell. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Broadcast not for spectators. Uh, If you have commentary, uh, we did not tune in just to sit and quietly good thoughts about Bill Cosby I reckon if you know you're in a a noisy environment like myself make your best effort to want to get to a quieter area Uh, you can use your mute button when you're not speaking that would be super appreciated just helps to so we don't have to compete with a lot of unnecessary background disruptions Uh, if you could use about five minutes share your thoughts observations questions that would be great just make sure everyone has at least one opportunity to speak Uh, if you could also refrain from using metaphors that would be super appreciated i believe the white man in north carolina said he was almost knocked off his chair i seriously doubt that he fell down or needed assistance by a white man saying that they shouldn't be here talking about the niggers i seriously doubt that you're exaggerating lying as they call it if we could try to be precise exact with our commentary that would be appreciated I will prompt about the metaphors 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate first few folks who dialed in with a hand up proceed greetings can I be heard uh, yes, sir. We can hear you. Oh, uh, uh, greetings, Gus. This is Che from Japan. Um, yeah, I uh, have a clear schedule today. I have been uh, able to make the make a live broadcast. I haven't. Uh, I've been listening to the archives for weeks, and very, very constructive things there. Um, not to dwell on it too long, but I just uh, I was especially. I, I got a lot 
out of uh, what I saw when you had two interviews with Dick Gregory. And uh, it, it kind of came to mind because right now there's a, a movie being released. It's sort of a, a, a get on documentary, a biopic. I don't know. I can't get it out here. I just see the news about it on YouTube. And so there's a lot of Dick Gregory uh, thing in the air. Um, and um, just that he was on the cows, I was very interested to see those. And, and uh, it was just good to see uh, different approaches to uh, this a system of white supremacy and kind of, uh, it was just, it was very constructive despite the fact that it, it might not have ended quite so uh, amicably, but nevertheless, I got a great constructive value from that. But anyway, I don't want to dwell on those pa- on the past with uh, those issues, but, um, uh, and yes, uh, I, I, um, I, I received your message about instruction about how to make payments and I don't know what happened, uh, PayPal usually works fine for my wife and I from here to all all sorts of countries. Perhaps the usual suspects are involved in why it's a difficulty for me to get something to you, but uh, I'll, I'll try those other, other methods that you suggested. Um, just a few thoughts about what I heard today. When we, uh, they said one man, uh, I believe in the in the Minnesota case, the Peacock Hills is that the name of the place, where they spoke about uh, the, the the equity and things be, being taught in their school system. And one comment stood out in particular when he said his main gripe was with, with, with that sort of teaching was that one's race automatically makes one either an oppressor or and want to be oppressed. And it, it just, see, that didn't seem so logical to me because if within a context of racial oppression, I think that's precisely, that, that would be the definition. By definition, uh, in a context of racial oppression, if one exists, uh, one's race would make one on one's either side, one side or the other. You have to be one of the oppressed or one of the oppressed. So I don't understand uh, you know, if there's a war between two countries, being a citizen of either country puts you on either side of that war, ir- irrespective of whether you're on a, a grunt on the front lines firing bullets, you're on either side of that war. So I don't really see how that makes sense, unless this person is trying to deny the fact that there's any racial oppression going on. So that seemed illogical to me, it didn't uh, make much sense. Uh, the other story about the, uh, about the black male who was shot at the gas station. I think they had warrants for him and so on. I mean, I, obviously I, I haven't seen all of the, there's some, 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 some body cam footage and so on and so forth. I didn't see, I've just heard what you broadca- broadcasted. I'm just, and, and he was in the car and possibly reaching for a gun, but there was a gun in the car and a lot of, confusion and, and, and back and forth about what actually happened. I'm just reminded of Mr. Fuller's instructions that when we get into these situations, you know, we should pretty much assume the worst about our, uh, you know, about, about the, uh, the opponent, so to speak, and just no fighting, no fleeing, no fussing, you know, that, that could have really, that, that, that's, that was just, it was just senseless. I don't think that that could have been fully prevented, I think. Um, but uh, I'm not trying to lay blame. I'm just trying to find a way to deal with the situation as it is within the context in which we're living. Uh, but obviously the hot thing of the week is the, the, uh, the Bill Cosby situation. And um, 
what strikes me about that is that this is, um, and I think I've, I've, I've heard in particular Judge Joe Brown, who's got legal experience as a, as a, as a United States judge, um, but even personally, just with a little bit that I know about the law, it seems strange that this was overturned, uh, that, that, that the, the second, the incoming DA just completely overturned what had already been established by the previous, uh, the, the, you know, the, the previous DA. Uh, as far as I know, that, that's like a, a, an incredible, uh, I don't want to not say breach of justice, but an incredible, uh, you know, that, that, that's not protocol. That, that's completely, I mean, everything is based on precedent. If it's already been established, how can you go against it? That's incredibly risky, I would think, for that DA to do that. You know, I would think, and, and Judge Joe Brown is actually asking for uh, or suggesting that Cosby's legal team look into, you know, uh, taking action against this DA now that it's finally been overturned because this was an, this was an incredibly, uh, you know, it doesn't make, it, it just goes against what everything that I've ever heard about, you know, precedents that have already been set. This person just said, no, forget what the previous judge said. I'm going to do this. I, I think that person probably did that at great risk, at great peril, you know, to their own personal career, so, which makes my question is then how did this person, you know, who put this person up to it is just what I suspect. Like, why would this person even have the, you know, the, 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 the guts to try and attempt something like that, knowing that it's a possibility that once that this thing could be really overturned and then you yourself, you, you've kind of made a fool of yourself and you're jeopardizing your entire career. So I, I, I'm really looking at, you know, what's, who's, what's the motivating force? What's the, 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 who put this person up to this? That, that's my question. What, what, what assurances did this person have that if this whole entire thing, that this thing wouldn't backfire and, and, um, and, and, and completely just, you know, uh, just fall apart and, and come back to, um, to haunt this person, so to speak, in, in, you know, later on down the line, career-wise, legally, and so on. Um, to your, and, um, I think this also, to tie it into your comments just a few minutes ago about Shaft, I think that really, you know, Bill Cosby, the, you know, that whole climate, uh, Shaft was, you know, ostensibly a good guy, the original Shaft in the 70s, although, you know, but uh, I think by the time we got into the 2000s, I, you know, the Denzel character in Training Day is sort of a resurrection of Shaft, Shaft, sort of Shaft's, you know, the mirror image, an evil sort of mirror image, a corrupt Shaft. Same thing, a tall, strong, masculine, black man, uh, leathered down, black leathered down, bearded and so on. I mean, you know, as much black as they could pack on his physical person, even, you know, with sort of a, a for the beginning part of the movie anyway, sort of the, the Muslim head cap, just to sort of add to whatever, a black one, no less, to add to that sort of an antagonistic spirit, you know, that he's Muslim, a black Muslim, and just completely othering him, making him opposite to, uh, you know, good, decent white society and so on. So it's kind of like Shaft, you know, Shaft, you know, made more evil and more intense and more in your face, more corrupt. And I think that's, you know, so yes, giant walking phallic symbols, that's emphasizing that, does this, like, a great disservice to our community. Bill Cosby obviously is look, was look, I think he, you know, that was a big factor in how he was perceived 30 seconds. in the media. Yes, sir. And, um, 
and, and, and just I, I wonder about how many black people in try, uh, black males in trying to imitate Shaft have uh, have done a disservice to themselves and gone to their own demise um, by feeding into that sort of a stereotype. Uh, thank you very much, and I'll meet my line. Our black male listener in China, Che. Very Sunday, my goodness. Uh, Sunday, I think. What time is it over there, sir? What time? Uh, it's quarter after twelve. Noon. Noon. Yikes! Yikes! Well, have a constructive Sunday afternoon. My goodness, glad you were able to uh, chime in. Few metaphors uh, in their haunt. I think it's one backfire. A uh, few of them, but much obliged for the commentary. Other side of the world, my goodness. Uh, let's see, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary, proceed. Hello. Hello. Uh, let's see, I heard uh, both of you. Let's see, let's I get. I have a question to go first. I got, a, I got a few minutes, but. Oh, okay. Uh, Ivory, feel free. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm going to make it fast because I'm actually really tired. Um, I didn't catch the headlines. I apologize about that. But um, I, I wanted to say, frankly, um, as far as Bill Cosby goes, I'm, I'm happy he's out. They didn't charge Crystal Kaiser, sexual abuser, when they had the chance, and her um, abuse was on tape. Um, they didn't charge Centoya Brown's accuser. Um, they didn't, they haven't charged many, uh, white supremacists for their sex crimes. And, um, so this is, this is balanced. Um, I did want to thank the caller. I think it was workplace racism when he said he had a code about not talking about his vaccine status. So I was asked, um, by a non-white, um, Asian person if I had gotten my vaccine and I said, I don't discuss my vaccine status. And then she volunteered um, that she was vaccinated once and had for a second dose. Um, I'm not sure why she volunteered because I was wearing a mask and she was wearing a mask too. Um, what else? Vaccine. Um, I've been listening to the book club and I wanted to um, help out with, um, there was something you all were pondering over the word Yahoo. I was first introduced to the word Yahoo in the military, and they would call anyone that was basically errant in being codified according to, you know, the military code or the unwritten codes for uh, what they would call bearing in the military. Um, and they would, uh, other Marines would call, call other Marines Yahoos. And I found it interesting because immediately, even then, I was young, but I was like, a Yahoo is a chocolate beverage. Why are you calling us a chocolate beverage? But then I thought about it during the book club. I said, oh, I get it now. So a Yahoo is basically representation for uh, milk that's been uh, tainted or um, intermixed with something that was could be considered black, uh, chocolate milk, Yahoo. So... That's the metaphor, and that's the clarification I wanted to offer um, why he used that. So apparently the author doesn't like uh, chocolate milk either. And that's all I want to say. Thank you. 
Much obliged, uh, Irie. We were talking about the term Yahoo uh, in the book club. Um, I think the term Yahoo, it, I think I said in the book club, it goes to Gulliver's Travels, uh, I think is the use of it. And particularly, I'm just reading online. Uh, these are characters, Yahoos. These are people specifically, a specific group of people in the book Gulliver's Travels. Um which is like 1726, I think, predates Yahoo Milk. I think that's the origin of the term. But the Yahoos are described as uh, filthy with unpleasant habits, a brute in human form. So I think that's why uh, they would be, even in what you were talking about in the uh, military, like they would call people who are out drunk and all the Yahoos behaving in this manner. But with Labyrinth, it wasn't that these were just drunk off-duty officers. It was that they were drunk and that they had a stolen gun from evidence. Like, that is, at least for me, that is beyond, like, just a Yahoo. Like, whoa, criminal activity. Maybe even a gangbanger, since he likes to call black people that in the book. But, yes, the Yahoo milk as well. We should perhaps think about that one. But Gulliver's Travel, 1726. I think that's the origin of the term Yahoo. Um, let's see. Other folks who dialed in, oh, female caller in Georgia, much obliged for your patience. Hello? Yes, ma'am. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, thank you for taking my call. Let me get my little timer because I don't have to say. Okay. Um, the information about Shaft, that was new. I never heard of that. I don't keep up with shafts like that. But I, while the um, the gentleman from Japan was talking, I did look. The shaft remake came out in 2000, and Training Day came out in 2001. You know, they didn't do these things by accident. You know, shaft, like he said, was seen as a quote-unquote good guy, and President Zell's character was seen as quote-unquote bad guy. Um, when it comes to environmental justice, I want to know the demographic. Are they changing in these areas where they want to put all these new trees? So they said lower income, whatever areas, are those populations changing? I know in New York, uh, where my family lives, well, just one member, in the Flatbush area, they put up new trees and things when the white people started coming, started moving to, in that area. Um, when it comes to the critical race theory and the objections, I just want to know, in general, how can they believe a child can change their gender when it's five and six years old without anatomy or biology class, but they can't think about a theory? And within a theory, we know it's not a law. You know, how they can decide, oh, this is good. This, a ch- child can't do that, but they can say, they can look at their penis and go, oh, no, I'm a girl, or looking, not having a penis and go, oh, I'm supposed to be a boy. Okay. Um, what else is Oh, still, you know, on the environmental justice, we still don't know what's going on with the Flint water situation. And I believe it's called Lowndes County in Alabama, where they said they can't even drink the water, the sewer. The sewer water comes up through the grass and everything. No one says, still not saying anything about that, but okay. Um, when um, Mrs. Rashad, she supported um, Mr. Cosby, um, I just, you know, technically it is justice. They fought. The law was not followed, so they overturned the, the verdict. 
Um, and people always will have a problem seeing where black men supporting black women or black women supporting black men. That is her friend. She always believes in supporting. I don't know what else she thought she would say. Um, and it is justice. And I'm sorry other people's feelings are hurt, but it is what it is. Um, and then they would, a lot of times they would talk about quote unquote poor women, the poor women, the poor women in this case, they'll never know what justice is like. How will women speak up after this? They should be worried about several cases, including Brock Turner in 2016, the young man who got six months when the woman that was raped was unconscious. Somebody pulled them off of her. She followed all the proper steps, got the rape kit, blah, 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 all that. And all he got was six months. That's, that would deter me from seeking justice. Or Roman Polanski, who is getting applauded in films, people like that. That would deter me from seeking justice, not this particular case with Bill Cosby. Um, I think that's all I have to say. Thank you. Jeffrey Epstein, I mean, talk about it. Um, well, he's dead now, so you can't get much from him. True. True. <laughs> true. Waiting on Jocelyn Maxwell, though. Eagerly awaiting Jocelyn Maxwell, his uh, accused partner in child rape. Uh, let's see. The Allison Mack lady in a sex cult got three years. I'm sorry. She only got three years, was involved in a sex cult. So there are a lot of people that would determine not this case. Sorry. Woody Allen, lots, lots. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in that we have missed totally. If you have a hand up, proceed. Green, I be uh, heard both of you. Let's get uh, let's get our caller in Cleveland first. Uh, greetings, Gus. Um, great clips, as usual, uh, to all the callers and listeners. Um, the uh, clip about the uh, heat in uh, the Northwest, Pacific Northwest, uh, brought to mind to me the uh, global warming. And uh, I've been kind of reading about that over the last couple months. And uh, it, it, it seems that people who are going to be most affected by global warming, climate change, are going to be those at the equator. And it appears that the population globally increase is going to be, in, for example, Nigeria, which is going to be maybe in the next 20, 30 years, the most populous country on Earth. So that may have... Uh, some impact in terms of the response in terms of global warming and climate change. Um, second, uh, the black farmers uh, clip you gave uh, resonated with me. Uh, there was a statement that we're going to level the playing field. I'm not sure how that can uh, be accomplished for for example, for a person like myself, whose grandfather was terrorized and run out of central Virginia by uh, white terrorism, who considered himself a farmer, 
his entire life, but was ran out of there and wound up in Ohio. Uh, Shaft. Uh, As a teenager of the 70s, I think the more influential uh, picture was probably Superfly. And it's interesting to to contrast Superfly uh, versus Shaft. Shaft, a dark-skinned gentleman. Superfly, more light-skinned. Possibly processed hair. Uh, I think, you know, sort of the platform heels, the long coat. I think it was probably of the two two films more influential. I don't know. But that was kind of my impression. Uh, Bill Cosby. They talk about Bill Cosby and a lot of the sexual uh, issues in terms of uh, with women, uh, but they never associate him with uh, uh, Hugh Hefner. He was a, a common participant and was well known in terms of participating and being a visitor in the Playboy Mansion and was uh, talked about in the 70s and 80s. Uh, Hugh Hefner is thought of as an icon, but from my standpoint, uh, basically uh, promoted the open brothel for several decades and is now looked upon as an icon. Uh, Who knows? Maybe Mr. Cosby learned some of his potentially techniques or whatever from Hugh Hefner. I don't know. But it's interesting to to contrast the two two people. And uh, lastly, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, the uh, Secretary of Defense, passed away this week. Um, there was a uh, a uh, segment on one of the uh, news, the, the uh, cable news programs. He apparently bought the plantation called Misery on the eastern shore of Maryland that uh, Frederick Douglass was sent to for a breaking, and he was terrorized for uh, a couple years prior to his escape. So I thought that was interesting that he would buy that, and it was became a, shall we say, uh, resort for people who classified as white, uh, also known as misery on the eastern shore of uh, Maryland. Uh, that's all I have. Thank you. Misery names. Uh, hang on one second. Uh, Non-Clemson grad, thank you for your patience, sir. Maybe uh, Miss C as well. Proceed. Uh, yes, sir. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone's having a wonderful weekend to the best of their ability. Um, a lot of interesting stories this week, definitely. Um, I'll start with the Bill Cosby one. Personally, when I heard um, he was being um, released, I personally just laughed my butt off. Um, I remember when I first moved to South Carolina back in 2014, I remember having a conversation with someone, and I was definitely of the belief that um, if this many women were accusing him, um, that he must have did it. 
And um, as I got older, as I started to actually understand just a little bit more history about this country, and you think about things like just uh, Emmett Teal and uh, just basic accusing black men of something, especially without evidence, um, I'm personally happy that uh, Mr. Cosby got off because um, I, I just point him out. I just don't simply believe any of the stuff that they said about him. Um, at the most, maybe he has sex with these people, but rape, I just don't believe that for a second. Um, go, um, I heard the earlier story with the um, the trees and stuff. It's very, very unfortunate. Um, it, you know, I believe there's maps that also show that along with the fact that there are places, you know, in many um, cities around the U.S. where there is a lack of trees, that lack of trees also lines up pretty well with uh, redlining maps. And, you know, this plane, you know, right now, obviously, the Northwest, you know, going through the heat wave that it's going through, um, people really don't understand the importance of trees. Um, so, you know, obviously, you're walking, it's really hot, it gets you shade. Um, it lowers temperatures from by roughly 5 to 10 degrees when you're walking on the street, especially in the summertime. That's, uh, that's really important. And it's, uh, it's, it's just made more unfortunate. Um, so, for example, because um, I went to a... Um, a safety conference workshop this week for work. And um, at least one of the major points that I brought up is like one of the things the state engineers are trying to, um, you know, talk about safety more when it comes to people being killed, uh, people who might be walking and biking, because South Carolina is one of those places where people just die a lot. Um, they get hit by cars and it's, it, it just seems like they don't care here. And um, when it comes to highway design, there's something called a clear zone. And what that means is that when you go off the, off the side of the highway, there's a there's basically an area where there's no obstacles. So how the, how the trees are set really, really far back from the highway. So if someone makes the mistake of running up the road um, at those high speeds, you don't make the mistake of hitting a, um, an immovable object like a tree or something like that. Because, you know, the sudden stop of a vehicle from 60 miles per hour to zero miles per hour will kill the occupants. So the idea is that the clear zone gives people enough um, enough time to recover if they run off the road so that, that they won't be harmed. The problem with the clear zone is that they start um, using these um, highway standards in places where people are walking and biking. So, for example, at least in South Carolina, one of the design standards is that you could actually put a bike lane in the clear zone. So it's okay. Um, it's, you know, it's untenable design-wise to have immovable objects inside a clear zone like trees. But it's, it's, it's acceptable to have bike lanes where people might be riding their bikes or even walking or running and get hit by a car. That is acceptable in South Carolina by law. Um, but nevertheless, obviously, when you talk about places inside, you know, urban areas like cities and stuff, um, it's very problematic to have clear zones because one thing it encourages people to um, speed. And of course, um, where I live, uh, you know, a car went on one of the opposite side of the road and struck a person and killed a woman. This happened multiple times um, within the last couple of weeks, and um, so it's just that's um, that's why it's so important. Why it's so unfortunate when I hear things like uh, trees not being there, um, and then of course it just being really hot outside. Usually, when you do see um, some greenery in places, because uh, I do you know urban planning and stuff, um, you usually find the most greenery you find is maybe like a ditch, right? Um, someone waiting in a, um, a bus stop and the bus stop is in a dish and that's the most greenery that people um, have and that's what I mean by like the unfortunate is like no trees and stuff like no sidewalks this, this stuff is obviously quite ubiquitous no matter where you go in the country and just uh, plays out really badly in everyone's lives 
unless you're a white person, of course. And now me my line on that on that on that part. We had that whole program uh, back in uh, the autumn talking about trees and racism, white supremacy, and why lots and lots of black people live in it, like in Atlanta, where they have oppressive heat all the time, not once every 1,000 years. They don't have trees the way they do here in Seattle. They don't have parks the way that they do here in Seattle. Much obliged, non-Clemson grad. Uh, Retired firefighter in Florida. Much obliged for your patience, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings to uh, to uh, everyone. I'll start off with uh, the movie Shaft. Uh, like one of the previous callers, uh, I was of a teenage age during that time, uh, I think eighth or ninth grade. Uh, I don't know if I went to it uh, then, but uh, in my thoughts of it, I think it was a answer, uh, an image answer to the 19, the late 1960s uh, with the Black Panther Party and other organizations that were organized by young non-white people who were racially classified as black uh, that was uh, directly interested in confronting racism, white supremacy, although they may have made some mistakes, but they had, they had the intent uh, to, to do so. Uh, and in turn, as we know, uh, with the, uh, the U.S. government uh, directly assaulting such organizations, in turn, in the late 60s, early, early 70s, that's when the imagery uh, started coming out. Uh, uh, Shaft was one of them uh, of that genre that's called that would end up being called black exploitation. Uh, there were there were uh, movies even before even before that. I wouldn't necessarily call them black exploitation, but I remember uh, Sweetback Badass Song by uh, Melvin Van Peebles, uh, primarily uh, in the ones. Uh, that took place in the 1970s, uh, including Shaft. All of them had the same script. Uh, I'm going to get at the man. The man ended up being white, white, uh, the, the racist white man. And in turn, uh, that particular character was uh, sexually proficient and also had to have a, at least one sexual encounter with a white woman in the movie. Uh, it also evolved a style that was not too uh, constructive at all with the males. Actually, it was kind of feminine, high heel shoes, bell-bottom pants with no pockets in them at all, uh, and loud colors like uh, pink, uh, 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 red, the most brightest red that you can think of, that sort of thing. Uh, and like I said, they, uh, white people are very good at imagery uh, to be able to influence their victims. Uh, and moving on, uh, you remind uh, everybody at the end of your your uh, report about sobriety is best. I, I would, would have liked Ms. Richardson to uh, also have uh, adhered to that. Uh, I know as an athlete that she put a lot of time and energy 
towards reaching a particular goal that is not as easy as a lot of people think it is, being that she's young. Yes, you probably can go to another Olympic Games, but it's not as easy as a lot of people think it is at all. Uh, and uh, I also suspect also that she uh, uh, was using marijuana long before her mother died, but I could be wrong. Uh, sobriety is best. Uh, there was a, uh, I don't know if you reported or not, but there was some sort of shootout uh, on in, on the interstate in Massachusetts. Uh, it was within the last 24 hours, within the last 24 hours, uh, I was curious about who the uh, law enforcement was in a shootout with, and it ended up being a, a uh, group of non-white black males uh, of some sort of organization. The last part of the name was Moore's, but I don't know the full name of it. Uh, I think most of them were arrested. I could be wrong. Uh, I didn't really follow it real hard, but uh, I find it interesting. I'll do some more research for myself. And uh, last but not least, uh, as everybody knows, uh, tomorrow tomorrow is supposed to be something called the 4th of July. Uh, I would advise any and every non-white people to do not celebrate anything. Educate yourself. Pull out a book and study on what really brought about the, the, the uh, date that's called the 4th of July and find out for yourself under a global system of racism, white supremacy, uh, what perspective non-white people who are originally classed as black uh, fall into uh, under such a celebration. That's all I have to say. Thank you for listening. I have 11 people in custody. Wow, that's amazing. Um, wow. Generally, I've said white people do not have problems handling black people, non-white people with firearms. No problem at all. Uh, let's see. Other folks that we have missed totally. Uh, don't wait till the last minute. If you have a hand up commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, thank you, Gus, for taking my call. Hello, everybody on the line. Um, uh, I would like to start off by uh, commenting on the one of the female callers uh, speaking about the Brock Turner situation. I want to also add that it was um, the judge who decided that he did not have to register as a sex offender, and the reason it was that was given is because it would negatively affect his future. Um, the uh, the next. Well, the next thing I want to say is also from what the female caller pointed out, the trees. Yeah, I live in one of those areas that are devoid of trees, and on my block is only one tree um, on the right-hand side, and they just planted those new trees, like, I think about last year. So we have three additional trees on this block. Um, uh, the next thing I want to go to was about the um, the Delta virus. That's supposed to come from India, and I just want to point out the, the term they use, Delta virus, which is, starts with D, and then they have the alpha virus, which 
kind of signifies a, a superiority or the alpha uh, from the UK. I thought that was interesting. Um, the health professional, uh, she used a lot of metaphors. One of the metaphors was about uh, at the end of the tunnel, there's light and coming out of the darkness and et cetera. I thought that was in- interesting. Um, uh, the, the Also, the farmers, uh, BGQ, of course, uh, but he did use metaphor as far as uh, it's like having a hole in your roof of your house and the rain is coming in. Um, thought that was interesting. Uh, the school in Minnesota uh, never identified uh, what it means to be a white person when they were talking about, I guess, uh, uh, what is the term? Um, the term Critical race theory. theory. I'm sorry, I can't remember the term. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, that term has not been uh, defining it. If it is, if they are defining it, it's all over the place, in my opinion. It really doesn't make any sense. Um, can we just focus on solving the problem? That's what my question would be. And the only way to do that give, by giving it a proper name. Uh, the next section was uh, about, uh, I guess, uh, the Charlotte, Charlotte Mecklenburg. Uh, uh, the uh, person talked about uh, equity called it problematic to talk about equity. Uh, uh, history cannot be biased. I mean, it, well, history cannot be biased, really. It's decided by the victor uh, of any war, and they determine, you know, what history is passed down and who, you know, is spoken about in, in uh, glorious ways compared to non-glorious ways. Um, the, uh, the section that talked about Germany, um, it's still... It, kind of perplexed me that they're talking they're talking about Germany and these people are supposed to be ignorant of white supremacy. Isn't that, you know, where we had World War II and, and the, the Reich and all that kind of stuff? I mean, again, perplexing, I guess, act of racism, deception, I, I, would, I would assume. Um, uh, and it, uh, the next section talked about uh, the attacks on January 6, 2021. I personally don't look at it as a failure. I think that's kind of like a a, um, a first attempt, and there may be many more. Um, there, there has been historically, um, but you know I don't think that was a failure at all. What they did there, they they were able to go in. They had uh, 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 police support in certain ways. Um, I don't, I, from what I hear, there, no one's not really, really being um, prosecuted to, to the extent they should be. Um, uh, so. You know, I don't think that that, that will tell you at all. Um, uh, next section. Okay, and the next section was about Bill Cosby. They that was this metaphor used again. A rug pulled from under uh, underneath him. I, I don't know what that means by saying a rug was pulled from underneath him. Um, he was incarcerated unjustly, and you know, you know. Just, you know, that, that's what I think. Um, and with that, I will mute my line. Thank you, Gus. Thank you, everybody. And also be safe for tomorrow because there are a lot of power techniques happening right now where I live. And it's easy to confuse that with gun, gunfire. So, again, everyone be safe. Thank you, Gus. Battle simulation and binge alcohol consumption. What could go wrong? Stay safe indeed. What is that? Sobriety would be best. 
with the Bill Cosby uh, segment with Melissa Harris Perry, she said, if we take the Bill Cosby out of it, I wrote that down specifically. Talk about the man knot and the fungibility, the thing ability of the black male. You're not even a person. We will take the Bill Cosby out of it and then just view this as a constitutional violation due process being violated not just let's take the person out no 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 no. take the bill cosby out of it Mm -hmm. the man not i said bill he should talk greasy all summer long make videos every day of him reading the man not he can get it in braille or really big letters eating jello pudding pops uh, anyone that we missed totally commentary observations questions to share may I be heard caller in Florida yes sir yes sir thank you very much sir greetings to Gus the host the listeners and callers um I knew that name, uh, Ibram X. Candy, uh, sounded familiar because uh, there was a uh, time, I think it was like maybe last year, 2019 maybe, where he was at the downtown uh, library for about an hour with the mayor, and they were discussing the, uh, the, the book about how to be an anti-racist, I think. Uh, and I can't necessarily remember some of the points on the uh, discussion, but I definitely agree with the VGQ conclusion on it. Um, but I noticed that in the segment where the, I think that might've been a white woman. She, she seemed like, I guess she didn't agree with some things, but she said, Oh, there's some, there's some, some things I do agree with. Uh, but she never said what she agreed with, though. So um, it may have been something she heard about that she may be comfortable with being shared. I guess uh, the things like everyone can be a racist, et cetera. Uh, there was another article that I read about the Florida Congresswoman, Kat Kamek, uh, was talking about doing something with a person named Jim Jordan, a congressman, about free speech, creating a free speech caucus, I think. And she kept, from what I read, she kept using the term conservative, and I know that can be uh, a point of deception, like, you know, what's meant by conservative. Um, And there was a, a quote on there where she mentioned about um, how she she thinks free speech is being suppressed or whatever. And I think she means by a particular group, so-called conservatives on campuses. And there was another one. It seems like it connects to where the governor has uh, signed in an order to where the teachers have to, uh, it seems like by force, 
submit their political views to the government. So I, I have no idea how that can be done. So, and then also the uh, black female that used to be in the school board position uh, had the NAACP uh, come and um, speak in her support from the governor also forcefully making her seat vacant. So uh, there's been a lot of stories with racism going on here locally. But there was one I was trying to look for, but I just couldn't find it. But that uh, story there in Minnesota, I thought about how the um, – it looks like it, would, it, it was some white people on the video that went to vandalize the George Floyd monument or the statue, um, something I'm not surprised by. And that's pretty much all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged, uh, caller in Florida. Remember the update last week, uh, one of the black officials being asked to step down and all the rest of it. The NAACP, I'm sure they have lots of authority in the Sunshine State, so they can come in and get things taken care of abruptly. Uh, someone, uh, I think our caller Che in Japan had mentioned the Dick Gregory documentary. The one and only Dick Gregory, I think, is the title. Should be coming out sometime over the next few days. If it's not out already, you can probably watch it online or what have you. Probably will have quite a bit to do about racism. He wrote books as well, so you can read directly what he had to say about a number of things. Uh, Talked about some of his books on the program way back when as well. Uh, Did any other folks have commentary they wanted to make sure they shared before we wrap things up? We have maybe three minutes left in the broadcast we get anybody anybody anything else to share soon folks are satisfied maybe i cannot wait to read uh earl tidyman's book on shaft um I don't know when we will finish Labyrinth. I did want to read about Rodney King and the L.A. Uh, riots, but I mean, oof. the homoerotic fiction of a white man that has become a 50-year franchise. Oh, yeah. Let's let's check that one out. Uh, I, I, incidentally, I remember the call in Florida when he said Mr. Kendi was in his area, I guess, to do some sort of talk. And it's like, man, maybe I should go and take notes. That sort of he was lots of talks virtual or I guess in person maybe before the uh, Rona situation apparently uh, there are enough white people they are all right paying him to come share his views on white supremacy racism again victims guaranteed qualified he got 25k last time I hope it's 75k next time Uh, everybody satisfied We will assume folks are good. Uh, we should be here Monday. Uh, Brian S. Bentley. Uh, we will discuss his time uh, with the LAPD in the 1990s, the impact of the O.J. Simpson case, the rioting, Rodney King, the killing of black officer Kevin Gaines that we've been talking about in Labyrinth and the book, the film. Looking forward to it. Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern. 5 p.m. Pacific. 
much obliged to all the folks who tuned in. I cannot echo it enough. This so-called holiday weekend. People have been out cutting the fool, uh, being reckless, the alcohol, the battle simulations and all of that. I would be very alert, very mindful of the surroundings. I'd probably try to avoid being in any big groups for a lot of reasons, but I especially would not want to be if it's going to be a lot of folks and alcohol and all that. I'm good. <laughs> like uh, We're just coming back outside anyway. I'm going to go real slow on this one. And lots of enforcement officers will be out for lots of reasons. I would be real alert about your conduct, surroundings, everything. Uh, over the next probably until Tuesday all of that said said with emphasis sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy preserve your uh, brain computer try to avoid whites race soldiers non-constructive victims even if alcohol narcotics are involved in addition to being sober you're going out and about, you see someone being hostile, rowdy, combative. This is not a time to be uh, getting into verbal exchanges with strangers. Exit. You don't know if that person is intoxicated. You don't know if they're armed. You had the report. White fella just pulled up next to a black family, not road rage, pulling out a firearm. You should be thinking somebody is being rowdy and hostile in public. This female, this male may be armed. They may have a whole entourage of folks who are armed and ready to kill. If you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or be killed, flee. Get out of there. You have other things to do. It is a very dangerous system, especially if you're classified as black. All of that said, creator. Oh, oh, oh. As you are out and about, be very mindful of your surroundings, especially the next few days. If you're driving, you're not on the cell phone. We need all of our attention, and we're trying to minimize contact with race soldiers. That's it, Creator. We ask that we, you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person no name calling minimizing contact with other victims of racism is a primary duty cows signing out thanks all for tuning in Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.